Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Coming up on a jam-packed Monday, November 13th, 2023 edition here on the Chase Thomas Podcast, college football, Matt Green, Valley University of North Dakota alumni. We recap week 11 in the college football season, uh, Tennessee's rough loss at Mizzou, UGA blasting Ole Miss, uh, the Texas A&M job opening up. So we talk about candidates, where it all went wrong for Jimbo. Uh, we talk about um, Alabama and Georgia now officially meeting in the SEC title game, Penn State laying yet another egg in a big game against Michigan. Um, and then Jane Daniels really wrapping up uh, the Heisman and why he is uh, absolutely the choice after week 11 in the college football season. We also talk about uh, the Tennessee sports guys. So uh, Rocky Top Insiders, uh, Ryan Schumpert and Rocky Top Insider and always college football's Jack Foster join the show. Talk all things Tennessee volunteers, what happened at Mizzou, uh, why that was the worst loss in the Josh Heupel era, uh, how Shader completely carved up um, this Tennessee defense where Tennessee uh, really went wrong, how Joe Milton played, and then looking ahead a little bit to UGA. And then, of course, we got some Major League Baseball. Oh, yeah. John Taylor of New York City joins the show to talk all things uh, Major League Baseball. Uh, we talk about all the manager movement, uh, some big time moves with Craig Council moving over to the Cubs, what that looks like. We talk about um, some early offseason questions for uh, a lot of Major League Baseball teams and what they're staring at going into uh, the winter meetings. We talk about uh, Mendoza to the Mets, Vought to the Guardians, Tim Anderson. What does his appeal look like now that he's officially not going to be um, a member of Chicago White Sox going into next year? Giants make a lot of sense. So jam-packed show for you guys today. So look out for that. Um, all that good stuff on this edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. So, without further ado, Uncle Darren. Chase Thomas Podcast. The Chase Thomas Podcast. <laughs> um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from 
Knoxville, Tennessee, everything school HQ down there in Tequila, Georgia, Philly University of North Georgia alumni. Matt Green is also here. Matt, good evening, sir. How are you? Good evening, sir. It is uh it is good to be back. It is uh finally feeling cold. It is finally uh I feel like I don't know, is it winter or is it legitimately fall? I don't know what we call it, but it's uh it's finally cold down here uh in Tequila. But uh yeah, man, it was a uh, it was a big time week of uh college football. Where do you want to get started? Not with Tennessee. <laughs> not uh not with Tennessee, I don't think, Matt Green. Um is oof. it is it fair to call it a rivalry now? No. It's not a rivalry. No, no there's, there's not one Tennessee fan who has any kind of animosity towards Missouri fans or the teams or anything. It's like, we don't think about you at all. It's the whole uh, Don <laughs> Draper, Al, uh, Ginsburg, Mad Men situation. It's just like they, they look over and they're celebrating and they're like, oh, what a big win on Saturday. And it's like, oh, we really showed Tennessee. It's like, yeah, we don't really think about you at all. Like, you're not you're not at the same level. Like, this is a top three NIL program. This is a program that's dominating all across the board. Uh, this is a program that has a Coliseum in the Stadium, 102,000 people. This is a program that has won national titles in the last 25 years. This is a program that can still recruit at a level that can win a national title. This is still a program that beat you and outscored you by, like, a 75 uh, total points in the last two years. Like, Look, good win. It's good. Hey, we can't. Well, we can't. We can't be talking about the last two years when Missouri just came out and uh, and dominated on. Yes, Saturday. we can. Because it's you asked if it's a rivalry. It's like no, not really. I mean, sometimes it six happens. Six to six since they joined the SEC. That's that it's sounds fine. like a rivalry in my book. It's fine. They don't have a clever name like the uh, the battle for Columbia, like they do with the the South Carolina series, but. No, I think I think Missouri's got to consider Tennessee a rivalry. They can consider it all they want. Tennessee will never consider Missouri a rival. Like that's not a thing. It will never happen. It will never be a thing. We'll see. A little more Eli Drinkowitz talking shit. It could become a thing, but um, no, they want it to I'll, be a thing because that adds to Missouri relevance by making it a thing. That helps Missouri. If Tennessee claims Missouri, that helps Missouri. That is jumping on the back of a prominent big time blue blood brand in college football for uh the young upstarts no you no that's not a thing nope won't do it well i mean with the sec east coming to an end it's like it's not going to be a thing so there's not really a chance for it to be an every year thing but uh big win for sure let's just dive into it no hold on we're we're not doing that first i I don't want to do it i don't want to talk let's just get it it out of the way i don't want to talk about it matt green we'll talk about (laughs) it in a second Uh, i want to talk about something uh that's more interesting Texas A&M over the weekend they fired their coach um, Jimbo Fisher 75 million dollar buyout um I mean I did not see that coming especially the timing um was weird because it was like reported that they came to the decision before the game on Saturday and he still coached anyway uh and they blasted uh Mississippi State uh at home even though mississippi state like returned the opening kick and you're like oh is this gonna go a totally different way and uh texas a&m obviously uh won by 40 plus but i look at this and uh, i mean this was something that i think had to happen based on where they were i mean him actually being le- uh less successful than kevin sumlin over the tenure their two tenures was pretty wild to consider um a lot of talent a lot of five stars um some big time classes over the last couple of years the expectations were high and injuries kind of derailed some stuff, but 
He also may not have been in the situation if uh, Jimbo had hired Bobby Petrino a year ago. Uh, if you had two years of this kind of offense that we've seen um, this year, maybe they're looking at a different kind of situation altogether. But it was too little too late, and there's just too much money on the line. There's too much talent on the line. Texas and Oklahoma are coming in the conference next year. You kind of just need to get a get out ahead of this, Mac Green. So I think uh, it was the right move uh, for AM and if they can afford to eat that kind of money, then look, I'm a big believer. It's like, I don't like holes of like, oh, well, he won forward down the stretch. So maybe he's turned the corner. No, it's like you should always operate under the belief of like, hey, either one of two things. You believe this is the coach who is going to get you there or you don't. There's not this arbitrary. If he wins eight games and maybe no, you either believe in him or you don't. So it seems clear that they did not believe he was going to be able to get them to that final level of winning national titles, making the playoffs, things like that. And if that's the case, look, saving 60 or going from 65 million to 75 million a year. No, that's just a waste of time. It's going to be a big number no matter what. So if you don't believe Jimbo's the guy to guide you there um, in 2024 and beyond, then you got to make this kind of move. It's a staggering number. The figure is uh, insane to look at. But I mean, I get it. And I think the AM job is going to be extremely, extremely interesting to see which names pop up and who ultimately gets this job what say you Matt Green yeah I think the buyout number is still why it's surprising like they're they were clearly underachieving but man paying someone 76 million dollars not to coach that's uh that's wild to me but but like you said he was 45 and 25 and 70 games uh someone was 48 and 22 after his first 70 um, ended up 51 and 26 overall. And it's like someone was the eight and five king. Like it was, it was good, but nothing special outside of the one year where you had a generational quarterback. And that's basically what, um, what Jimbo had other than the generational quarterback. He had one year, um, in how, what is this year eight? Mm. Um, one year where they lost less than, less than four games. So it's like, that's just, it's not going to get it done. I felt like, you know, there might be a little bit of a, some context this season with a, another injury to the starting quarterback. Like, I mean, this team without their starting quarterback lost to Alabama by a touchdown to Tennessee by a touchdown to Ole Miss by three points on the road. Like those are three top 15 teams, top 20 teams in college football. So it, it's not and in the Miami loss, obviously early on, they had, they had four losses, but I don't know. It, it didn't seem like it was bad enough to fire him right now. But I mean, I, I see the I obviously see the win loss record and compared to what he did against Kevin Sumlin. Uh, and if, if so, if what Sumlin did wasn't good enough, then what Jimbo's doing with that much more money and that much more NIL resources and all that, it's I get it. I guess I get it. I, I this, the timing surprises me a little bit, but but I do get it. But you also want to get out ahead of this. You want to get this search started. You're not playing for anything down the stretch. I mean, I think the timing makes sense, honestly, um, because you can, you want to beat out uh, potentially an Arkansas for a guy you want. You want to get out of uh, some of these other jobs that might open up. And it's also, I thought it was funny, like uh, a lot of coaches are just smiling, um, big time coaches around the league where guess what? Now a lot of dudes are about to get raises because they're just, their agent's going to float that, uh, they are maybe interested in looking at the AM job and the money that uh, might be offered to him there. So we're going to see some raises uh, from some coaches that probably don't deserve it uh, because uh, they're going to float the AM job as a possibility. And 
kind of like see if they can leverage that a little bit. So that's always a fun part of uh, these cycles. But I wonder to you, Macri, uh, is it fair to compare? Because I'm seeing a lot of comparisons to LSU when it opened up after Ordron, right? That it's a sleeping giant, that it's just a quick fix, that there's a lot of talent there. I'm like, I don't think this is as good of a job as LSU. And I don't, I don't know if it's like a slam dunk where, I mean, LSU got pretty dicey at the end. Remember, like Brian Kelly kind of came out of nowhere late in the process, but it looked like, remember early on it was Lane, it was Jimbo. It <laughs> Funny enough, where it was like, is LSU going to pull Jimbo from A&M? And it was going to be an uninspiring final. Lincoln Riley, I think, was kind of Yeah, maybe a little. Yeah, LSU. I think that's right. But ultimately, Brian Kelly comes out of nowhere, and it's turned out to be a pretty good hire, and I think Brian Kelly will uh eventually get there with this group and with the amount of talent i think he's a top 10 coach in this league so i think he they'll be fine it was a good hire i don't know if the a&m job's gonna go like that i have no idea because you see all the names where it could go all over the place like you see uh trailer from uh utsa you see lane kiffin you see mike elko um i've heard dan quinn's thrown around at dc at uh with the cowboys remember he has some college um experience at florida and company and um, I don't know. You're just seeing names from all over the place. Kalen DeBoer up in uh, Northwest, like Glenn Schumann popped up um, from Georgia. I've never seen a more diverse opening, just who could be the next coach of AM. Mike Norvell, just go back to back Florida State coaches um, if you're AM. I don't know. Like, there are a whole heck of a lot of names, but where would you guess, or not even where would you guess, because it's hard to just put yourself in uh, Ross Bajork's um, um, shoes here uh, with this hire. But if you're if you were Ross right now and you're connecting the search, where would you target and who would make the most sense to you when you think about the big time names or even some off the radar names? Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like with Texas A&M, like they like like to to start with the first part you're saying, like no, A&M's nowhere close to as good of a job as LSU. Like LSU's the last three guys they've hired have won national championships. So like A&M hasn't won a national championship in a hundred years. So it's definitely not that level. It's a, it's a, it's a good job with a lot of money and a lot of like access to re, uh, the recruiting uh, footprint and everything, you know? So obviously A&M has a lot of things going for it, but it doesn't have anything going for it that like every single other powerhouse program in the Southeast doesn't also have going for them with with also more recent history of national championships. So it's up there. It's a good job. It's not necessarily like we talk about all the money A&M's uh, got and it's like, yeah, that's fine. But a lot of schools have a lot of money. You still got to do the right thing with it. So I um, when I look at A&M, obviously Mike Elko's name is one that gets thrown out a lot with his experience with Jimbo you almost worry does, does his experience with Jimbo hurt him that it's like we're trying to go a complete new direction we don't want to yeah. bring any of the Jimbo era back um yeah Glenn Schumann is a guy like this guy was under Kirby Smart and he saw like Kirby Smart didn't leave until he got a powerhouse job offer so Glenn mm. Schumann when he leaves Georgia he's going to get some sort of powerhouse offer in my opinion it's just depends on which one comes along but a&M doesn't feel like the type of job that A&M feels like they're going to make a splash, like hmm. because we always talk about their money and everything like they they poached Jimbo Fisher from Florida State, a national championship winning coach. So a guy like Mike Norvell, I think it would be a bad move. A Dan Lanning, that doesn't make sense to me. You know, maybe Kalen DeBoer, 
you know, maybe a and a better job than Washington. I'm not really sure it is. I, I definitely think Oregon's a better job. So mm. I, um, Lane Kiffin is one that like A&M's got a higher ceiling than Ole Miss, in my opinion. So it's like, that's one I could understand happening. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I feel confident they're going to get a guy with experience that's like, Got got some name recognition that you can get excited about. I mean, it's funny, but I mean, Lane does make the most sense. And you listen to his comments after the Old Miss game, where it's like we just have to recruit better. He was pretty demoralized after the Old Miss game um, last night, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I wonder if that leads to it. I mean, he was flirting with the Auburn job uh, this past cycle. Um, his name popped up obviously with LSU. Um, I think people are just like assuming that he's going to jump back to the. This sounds, I don't mean to say it in like a disrespectful way, but like just the big boy ball of the five stars. And like, there's just a, there's a ceiling for Mississippi. There's a ceiling for Mississippi State. There's a ceiling for uh, Mizzou, who we'll talk about in a little bit. There's a ceiling (laughs) for Kentucky and what you can ultimately be. Um, But A&M's got a different ceiling than some of those. I think Well, that's what I'm saying. It's a different ceiling. So if he jumps, this is a jump up where Lane wants to win championships again. Like Lane wants to get Mark Stoops. Yeah. Or something that could, you know. That's a tough sell, though. Uh, that's a tough. There's sell. a there's a tendency, though. It seems like when you get the offensive minded coach and it doesn't work out, and you fire him, you you go to the defensive minded yeah. coach. Now, there is, it feels like there's a tendency for programs, uh, college and pro, to do things like that. So, but they did go back to back offensive coaches. That's fair, and neither one of them, neither one yeah. of them worked out that well. So I don't know. Like, do you go? Do they go try to get James Franklin or something? Because Franklin feels like his seat's getting hot up in Penn State. Like, who knows? But I, uh, I love the Dan Quinn idea because I don't, I don't hate going NFL here a little bit because I think this is sneaky. Like, when you look at the budget and you look at the five stars and you look at what it's going to cost to keep a lot of these guys, because that's the other part of it. It's like. You can't even look at these jobs anymore when there is stacked five-star classes like AM has. Like it's a more appealing job pre-portal where yeah, those guys are all locked in. Like a lot of those guys aren't jumping out like hey, this is a plug and play. Like look at all these guys I get to walk into uh that I don't even recruit. <laughs> these are other people's players that I get to just take over. It's like, "Oh, five-star here, five-star there. This is amazing. I get a five-star quarterback, five-star wide receiver, five-star running back." That's awesome. What a great situation. That's not how it's going to go. Like you're going to have to immediately recruit and keep all these guys that Jimbo brought in that is going to be extremely arduous. That like it's we're going to see how many he keeps. Some people are going to leave. Like you're going to lose some people from your class that you have right now here. So, I think in terms of these jobs now, I think you have to be it, it's so much more complicated than it used to be and even walking into these um it's just kind of Man, I don't envy these new coaches coming into these situations because you immediately have to hit the ground running, not just recruiting for the next class, but recruiting these guys who are in the building that you have no relationships with that you have to convince that it's in their best interest to stay and all that. Like, it's just a lot. You know what I mean? Like, I just I don't know. I think it's a it's going to be interesting to see which way they go, because if you go NFL or somebody like that, maybe you can keep more of them who have more of an NFL understanding because this is a very NIL money based operation you know where it's just like that's what we've heard from for years now is like AM's nil budget and what they're doing is just second to none so when you look at it that way i mean you have nick saban taking shots a year ago and all that like i wonder if that's where you go you just like nfl 
eyes this thing even more and you just hire an nfl guy and you're like hey yeah like we're running an nfl operation down here hey we haven't even talked about the biggest splash that could possibly be and it's coach prime like we know about his texas roots and high school recruiting to texas like Deion sanders that would definitely it, he's, it's only a matter of time till he's coming to one of those bigger jobs. Like everyone saw the buzz he created at Colorado in one year. Like, I don't know. I wouldn't rule it out. I just, I'm a believer. He's waiting out Alabama. That's my thing is I think he's waiting out Alabama. <laughs> no. Could be wrong, but that's what I've said for years. Um, but we shall see Matt green. Um, your early prediction. Give me a prediction. It's uh, day one. You could look like uh, clairvoyant Matt Green. Who do you guess right now on November 12th? Who gets the A&M job? Um, Lane Kiffin. Okay. I'm going to go Mike Elko. I think they do go safe and they do go someone in the family and DC's recruited uh, well in the area. Um, And like you said, they go opposite. In a lot of these, yeah, I don't think they that's got what I was straight. thinking. Lane Kiffin feels like just a younger version of Jimbo, like yeah. a guy shit talker, like uh, poking the bear of Nick Saban and all that. And um, maybe he so keeps by Petrino happen. because that's what I would also do. I would keep Petrino. The offense has been a lot better, and Petrino is one of the best play cars. Like I would, if you hire Elko, you can maybe keep Petrino and not lose a uh, lose a lot there, because um, that might be a bigger appeal to hiring a defensive minded guys. Just you want to higher defense and then keep Petrino installed as the OC. And I mean, Elko's a big reason why, you know, a lot of those big time recruits wanted to come to AM and uh, on, on the defensive side of the ball. Like that's, he's, he's a big part of what they, the guys that are currently there. Absolutely. All right, Matt Green, um, week 11 in the books here. How did uh, the pick them go for both of us? It was another excellent week uh, for us on the pick 'em. I, mm. uh, I I just can't make up any ground on Chase Thomas over there. Um, so both of us went nine and two overall mm. on the weekend. Um, I went eight and three against the spread, which I was very proud of. But Chase Thomas over here went nine and two against the spread. So killing it this week, up to fifty nine point five percent on the season against the spread to my 54.5. So, you know, what can you do? Zeus, Penn State, let him down. Uh, only his fourth loss of the season. So he's 11 and four, sitting at 73.3% on the season. So still, still killing it. But, uh, but yeah, Nittany Lions let him down this weekend. Interesting. All right. Uh, Matt Green, let's go to Georgia first and we'll talk Tennessee. We'll talk about your dogs first. This was where Chase was right. I said Carson Beck would have a big day. I had questions about Old Miss's defense, last home game of the year. Dogs are getting up for this, like this night game, and we know Kirby's history with night game. Everything about this screamed, go to a nice dinner with your wife. Go to go to the movies uh, for the second half. Go, go do anything other than watch the last uh, 30 minutes of this football game. And I was right, because not only did Georgia blow out old miss it wasn't even close like this was significantly worse than what we saw the week prior against missouri matt green and this was a shellacking all across the board um but as the the georgia expert on this very show sir how did georgia blow out old miss i think it's just because they could not stop this offense georgia ran for 300 yards passed for 300 yards carson beck 
is absolutely dealing. Like Carson Beck, I'll say it right now. This is no disrespect to the legend that was number 13, Stetson Bennett. Carson Beck is better than Stetson Bennett. Like he's just oh, wow. a he's 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 a better thrower of the football. Like Stetson Bennett's got some moxie and he he made plays with his legs. And Beck's an underrated athlete, too. You saw multiple times in this game where he was able to run for first downs. Like this the way just with how crisp Georgia's offense looks, especially in the big games this year, it's I would say this offense looks better than last year's offense with Mike Bobo compared to Todd Monkey. Offense just looks like it's just firing on all cylinders right now. Like Ole Miss, like you said, it's not the best defense they're gonna play um this season by any means, but just to see Georgia come out and score touchdowns on their first four drives of the game. Could have been fifth that uh they got the interception before the half and wasted a lot of time for for whatever reason and then uh Carson Beck we threw the interception on an absolute dime honestly like that ball was thrown like in the exact spot could have been down inside the ten but uh, went off Dominic Lovett's hands uh, and got picked off but I felt like and then you got Bowers back I think that surprised you know I, well for what you were hearing from reports you you were not surprised by the time kickoff came. I mean, they were hyping up that this guy was was balling out in practice on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So he uh, he looked as good as ever. Like he's breaking tackles. Like his very first catch got like a little lateral, like jump cut. And it's like okay, that's a, that's a good test right there, right off the bat. So to get Bowers back in this lineup, it just you could see the the difference he makes. Like the Florida game and the Missouri game, like. Florida's or Georgia's offense still looked really good in both of those games, more so probably the Florida game uh, than the Missouri game. Um, but you saw on that first touchdown to Lad McConkey, like Bowers runs a post and and two defenders go with him, and it just opens up McConkey. And it's just there's just so many playmakers with Rosemary Jack Saint, Ra Ra Thomas, Dominic Lovett, McConkey. It's like this this passing offense is. As far as the contenders in the college football playoff right now, I think Georgia's got the best offense of any of the contenders. Wow. I don't think that's uh, that's off the mark here. Um, I was thinking about it. I mean, maybe Florida State, Michigan, maybe. Um, but I still trust Georgia over Michigan in that situation. Maybe Ohio State's figuring some stuff out based on what we saw. Uh, this week, I think they had the most talent out wide to push Georgia. See, that's the thing, is I mean, Keon Coleman I think would cause problems for Georgia, him and Walker and their their size and seeing what that would uh, do. But they're causing problems for everybody. Uh, so just Marvin Harrison, we talk about Brock Bowers being a just an absolute freak of nature, but I mean Marvin Harrison also just an unguardable freak that like him and uh, Abuka and company. We've seen what they've done to Georgia through the passing game. The difference though, and why I just I don't think they're as big of a threat as they were a year ago. It's just the drop off from Kyle McCord uh, to CJ Stroud, I think is pretty large. And I just don't think uh, you have that kind of talent who CJ Stroud is just dealing in the NFL right now. And I just think you For saw sure. that Georgia game was just, he's a, he's a special quarterback. So I just, I don't, and what we've seen in the past to beat Kirby smart, it requires a special, special quarterback performance. And I just don't think uh, that's McCord. Yeah. And that's the thing. And like this year, like you could say Ohio State's defense, you could say Michigan's defense has been better than Georgia's. But like if you get into a shootout, are you ever going to feel like anyone really truly has a better defense than Georgia? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, they could statistically be 
slightly better, but Georgia's basically going to be as good defensively as anyone they're playing against. And and, and you've seen, uh, especially lately, this is the fourth straight game that Georgia's given up a touchdown uh, on the opening drive of the game. And it's basically like Kirby and Schumann and, and Muschamp. They're like, okay, this is what they want to do. Bet. We're, we're going to figure out how to stop it. Like Ole Miss had, I think, 185 uh, yards on their first three possessions of the game, scored two touchdowns. They're only two touchdowns of the game. I mean, that was basically half of their offense for the entire game that happened on those first three drives. And and then from then on out, like they just they just weren't able to stop Georgia. And I think that's kind of what I saw. We both kind of predicted this game similarly, is that Ole Miss would score some points, but ultimately Georgia wasn't going to be Georgia's offense wasn't going to get stopped. And I mm-hmm. think way more so than I thought, putting up a 50 number. Um, but yeah, I think this. This Car- Carson Beck, Bowers, and uh, this running game really coming along. Like This is the best game of Kendall Milton's career, honestly. And so you've seen what this guy can do when he's healthy. Can he stay healthy for 14, 15 games, however many it takes for, for Georgia to, to make another national championship run? But uh, if, this, if this running game can be as good as it was, you know, this offense is basically unstoppable. So what what did you see out of Kendall and Brock Bowers specifically? What popped for you and for both of them in this game? I th- I felt like Milton Bowers for one just was just looking like Brock Bowers, and then he just doing Brock Bowers things. He wasn't he wasn't used like he normally is, but I mean you saw that touchdown. Just I forget what kind of route. Like I think uh, Ben Watson called it like a viper route, where he just comes and just breaks down the the linebacker and just runs right around him. It's like okay, this guy this guy's operating on the level that he's supposed to be but but Kendall Milton like he was running hard just breaking tackles like had that burst like a couple of like 30 yard runs in this game so it was a uh, it was just nice to see like Dejon Edwards I've always felt like like no shade to Dejon Edwards cuz he's the one been carrying the running game all season but he's just a guy who feels like he's good and is doesn't isn't necessarily that top end guy. Not that Kendall Milton is is that top end guy, but when when healthy, it feels like he's got a higher ceiling. So when you got two guys like that, that's just you always want multiple healthy guys in the running game because you know anything can happen at that position. But I think uh, you know Georgia's offense is really uh, as as clicking as as good as ever at this point in the season. Interesting, and I. I wonder too, like, did Old Miss go wrong when you're watching this game? You're like, oh, Old Miss, what are you doing? Like, was there something where you're like, I, this is not how you want to attack Georgia? What did you see Old Miss do that just did not work and led to them kind of getting beaten down by this Georgia team? Um, it's hard to say because I, I, it feels like Georgia just makes adjustments because because Old Miss was having success early. Like, uh, Jackson Dart was making a few plays. Like, they hit the tight end on the wheel route, like, got him wide open. Because that's one thing I was worried about when you look at Georgia with uh, Jamon Dumas Johnson, uh, Buckus finalist out, uh, Buckus finalist from a year ago out. It's like CJ Allen and Raylan Wilson, true fr- two true freshmen, were really, you know, filling in in that absence. And, and CJ Allen went on to lead Georgia in tackles in this game. And I think he's the one that's really creating a lot of buzz. Like, and that's, that's got to be the frustrating part when you want, if you're any a fan of another team watching Georgia play, it's like, okay, they're, they're junior, senior, whatever, whatever year uh, Dumas Johnson is uh, experienced inside linebacker gets hurt. They've got to bring in a true freshman and this guy balls out and leads him in tackles. So that's just uh, the embarrassment of riches Georgia has on the defensive side of the ball. But, you know, I think, 
they Quinshawn Junkins was able to, to run it a little bit, like 75 yards in this game, especially when you get in the red zone. Cause I think that's the one area that you can definitely criticize George's defense is like, it's almost an automatic touchdown when teams get inside 10 yards and, and Judkins had two pretty easy runs that just, I think they had a first and goal from like the five where he ran it in and it was a penalty and then was first and goal from the 15 and they just ran it on the next play. So uh, I think that's one area where George has been, uh, you know, a little questionable, but I mean, 49, 45 carries for 179 yards on the ground for Ole Miss. Like that's a good, you know, rushing production on the ground, but at the same time, it's only four yards a carry. So if you want to do that and you're going to give up 50 points on the other end, like George will probably take that all day. But I mean, you got to look at, I guess, Tennessee is going to try to attack Georgia a similar way on the ground. So you know, if uh, uh, there there was, it feels like every Georgia game, there is like a shot early where someone gets a, a guy running deep uh, down the field and more times than not, they don't hit it. So, you know, if Joe Milton can hit one of those, like we, we remember Hendon Hooker a year ago uh, or in 2021, at least getting that early on and, and missing that open uh, deep ball. It's like Jackson Dart had one of these on old, one of Ole Miss's uh, early drives. So, you know, we'll see the secondary's been pretty good against most of the teams they've played. So this is probably the, I would say, probably the best secondary in the SEC, if not the best secondary in college football. So I think uh, if you're going to get Georgia, it's it's probably, you know, on the ground and, and you know, then you got to open up the passing game that way. Yeah, and I mean, the matchup's good. And I wonder, I mean, this kind of leads us into Tennessee, is I think – there's not a great way to play Georgia, but I do think they're not being stakes makes the game better for Georgia or for Tennessee. Like they're Georgia already being clinched uh, to get to Bama. They can lose the Georgia or the Tennessee game and it not be a big deal because they just beat Bama. They're in the playoff and everything's fine. Like, I think that is still where they're at. Now, if this was a game for the East, like we saw a year ago, Georgia's going to get up for that. Georgia's going to travel. It's a different kind of week for Georgia in preparation. Now, if, Tennessee licking their wounds with this loss and this drubbing uh, to Mizzou. And Mizzou's a good football team. Like, I made a lot of jokes at the top of the show about the rivalry aspect of it. That doesn't matter. What matters is Tennessee got their ass kicked um, in all phases um, in this game. And that was not something that I really saw coming. Uh, Cody Schrader. Um, well, hold on. Before you mm -hmm. get into this game, though, the last thing I'll say just about Georgia mm -hmm. is I think that's the biggest thing when you're when you're trying to do something historical – is like that's the stakes for Georgia. It's it's twenty seven straight games, uh, yeah. winning streak. It's like trying to make history, trying to have whatever streak of being ranked number one in the AP poll, trying to win a third straight national championship, like trying to be perfect. So mm -hmm. it, it might not have the same SEC East stakes, but you know it's Georgia, Tennessee, and Knoxville, and it's gonna be it's gonna be a big time environment. Oh, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. I am just saying broad strokes, it's better for Tennessee that this there's no stakes to this one for uh, I, for Georgia and Tennessee. I saw I saw some old miss podcaster. I, I don't know, I remember his name, but he said the biggest compliment you can get in, in college football this year is that Georgia cares enough about you to beat the hell out of you. It's like they didn't care about Missouri, they didn't care about Auburn, or they didn't, you know, they were kind of sleepwalking in some of these games, but but Kentucky and Florida and and, and Ole Miss, like those had the big game atmosphere. And they came out and dominated. I like that. It's mean, but <laughs> I like it. Um, balls crushed by Mizzou, as I uh, talked about just a second ago. Look, um, 
I think this also proved uh, Missouri and Georgia, the game last week, was really the SEC East battle crown uh, for that one. Mizzou played Georgia really well on the road. Um, they didn't let that loss throw them off at all. Like, they were able to rally and bounce back and just, hey, we lost a close game. We gave it our all in Athens. Georgia's a different beast. Let's regroup and get ready for Tennessee. And they were ready. Um, Brady Cook, some big third down runs, third and longs. Um, there was some, the game really flipped. And I wonder how this game goes if Jalen Wright doesn't fumble right at the end of the first half where Tennessee's driving. They're down. Um, uh, what was it? They're down 7-3, I think, at that point. Um, and Tennessee right there. Like you get points, you get the ball back, start the second half too. So Tennessee was right there. Um, and not only, or it was 10, seven, uh, excuse me, it was 10, seven Mizzou and they're driving down. So a field goal ties it and you get the ball back momentum going into the half, all that instead you fumble the ball away. Um, instead of scoring a touchdown, either, either taking a lead or a tie going to the half with the ball back, then you proceed to give up two plays to Cody Schrader back to back, just huge runs that get them into field goal range. And then they steal three points. Like the defense wasn't ready at all to go back on the field. The vibe just completely changed. Like you went in the locker room, suddenly down 13, seven, a full touchdown. And they just never came back. Yeah, from that. It felt like that was just a run. Just let's just go to the half. Yes. And it busted it for 40 yards or whatever it was. And that changed everything. A hundred percent. And look, Joe Milton was not the problem in this game. But what we said on this show what I've talked with the Tennessee sports guys is like part of what's flipped is that Joe is really, really strong as a game manager when he's in and he's um when he's on top, when he is winning and the offense is rolling, he's hard to beat him in this group is hard to beat. He's running the ball with a purpose. He's running over dudes. He's passing. Well, he's just kind of, it's kind of just like a, a runaway train when Tennessee is, starting off strong because Joe is confident and the whole just machine of the hypo offense is rolling. And they're really, really hard to stop when that happens. We've seen it against A&M. We've seen it against uh, South Carolina. We've seen it against uh, Kentucky. We saw it against UConn last week where that game ended in quick, in quick fashion where when they're, when they're rolling, it's still a scary thing, especially at home. Cause this team has not lost a home game since Georgia in 2021. I, just don't he doesn't have the ability to come from behind and that's the biggest issue is that like when you get down two scores he just doesn't have the brady cook stuff where brady cook is going to run on third and ten and keep a drive alive joe milton's not going to do that joe milton had some bad runs in this one where he just second guesses himself and he kind of reverted back to what he was in the florida game in some ways in this one and hinden would have taken off where there's just some stuff where it's like if things aren't there Dante Thornton has a touchdown catch, like a bomb, and is immediately hurt and knocked out of the game. Like, you've already lost Brew McCoy for the year. Then you lose Thornton. Like, you're just dropping bodies left and right um, in the receiver room. So injuries are killing him on that front. But, I mean, he's just not that guy. Like, Joe Milton is a play-from-ahead quarterback. Like, when he's when Tennessee is rolling, when they're running the ball well, he's a good game manager. He's a good guy to have leading your team in that fashion. But when things go awry in the second half of Alabama, uh, when things start <laughs> just spiraling, this team does not know how to face adversity on the road. They just have not been able to figure that out in the SEC um, by and large. And it's 
it's just tough. Like they have to get through this. If you want to make it to that next level, if you want to really compete for SEC titles, you're going to have to get over this. Like there was another, this was just an implosion in the second half. Um, you have to get up off the mat. You have to bounce back from that bad fumble. You have to be able to just get punched in the mouth and be down two scores on the road in the SEC and be able to come back and be able to be like, Hey, we're fine. Let's calm down. Let's keep running the ball. Let's keep getting back to what works um, each and every week. And they just don't like, Heupel had a terrible punt call at the end of the third quarter where the defense can't get a stop. You're down two scores and you're on their 38 and he punted. It was fourth and 11, whatever. doesn't matter. Your defense hasn't gotten a stop all game long. You just go for it and see what happens. Like it doesn't matter. Like pinning him up and Jackson Ross is a stud. Like he's an absolute assassin punter and he was doing a great job in this game. But you got to go for it. It was just like Hypo can now he's gotten too conservative with some of these fourth down play calls because he got I think he spooked from some of these uh, failures um, early in the year and he had a bad one against Florida and everyone remembers but he was a little over aggressive early in the year. Now he's going the other way where he's not aggressive enough where it's like hey man your defense is getting cooked like the linebackers look you lost Keenan Pilly for the year Aaron Carter is out for the year now you're very thin you're basically playing a true freshman a bunch at Jeremiah T. Lander you're playing Elijah Herring, who's not a starter in the SEC, like he's getting cooked. 44, had, he was the lowest PFF grade. He couldn't keep up with Schrader to save his life. And Mizzou, to their credit, was like, hey, we're going to go outside zone over and over and over again. And then we're just going to throw it to Schrader out of the backfield after he chips one of our guys. And the linebacker for Tennessee is not going to be able to keep up with him because he's not fast enough. And they just kept doing that over and over and over again because there was no, there was no answer. It's kind of like Kyle Pitts against Georgia a couple years ago where it's like, Hey, what are you gonna do with that wheel route to Kyle Pitts? Uh, nothing, because you can't. You don't have the personnel to stop the unicorn tight end. Like that play will work every single time. So why would you not just keep calling it over and over again? Schrader, there was no answer in the linebackers uh, for Tennessee to be able to keep up with Schrader. There was no personnel that they could throw that could fix that. So, I mean, it's bad. The defense is banged up. The linebackers are banged up. Um, the corners are banged up. I. Uh, I don't know. This was a bad, bad loss, but it's also like, what have I always said? This is a gap year for Tennessee. And I think every Tennessee fan looked at it as a gap year. You have Nico coming in next year, a lot more talent infusion coming in next year. You had the special year a year ago with Hinden Hooker and company. You lost a lot of NFL talent. Joe is just not the dude. Joe is not the guy who's going to lead you to 10, 11 wins in a regular season. He can get you to eight and four, nine and three. And that's okay. Like if you end up eight and four with a loss to Georgia and then you beat Vanderbilt and win your bowl game and finish nine and four, that's fine. That's that's hey, there were some bad losses like the Missouri game, like Florida, but that's still yeah, Tennessee's come a long way if that's if that's their bad year. Right. You're back to back six and two going in November. That hasn't happened in over fifteen years, Matt Green. So it's like, hey, baby steps. Like just be really good for a while. And Keep the class, keep it moving, get Nico and acclimated and company going to next year. And like, hey, things will be a little bit different and a lot more upside there, especially at the quarterback position. But I don't know. I mean, hats off to Mizzou. They were a much better football team. They're a much better football team than Tennessee this year. And we'll see what happens with Tennessee and Nealon on Saturday, because as much as <laughs> it looks bad and Georgia's marching in, playing at full strength, Tennessee's a different animal at home. Like, it's just different in Nealon. It's the reason the spread's 10. Two years ago, this is how far these two teams have come. It was over 20-point spread for Tennessee-Georgia two years ago when Georgia came in to uh, Nealon Stadium. It's down to 10. It opened at, like, 9, 9.5. So 
you've cut it in half in <laughs> two years, uh, the talent gap a little bit. So I think, hey, Georgia did not cover at Auburn. Georgia did not cover at Vanderbilt. You saw some problems for Georgia on the road in the SEC. You saw they have issues stopping the run a little bit this year. You're at home. Tennessee will run the ball better at home. There's some ways to talk yourself into that being a close game on Saturday. I'll be in the building. I'm going to talk myself into it all week long, but you can't unsee what was the worst game, I think, in the Hypo era at Tennessee. Seven points, least amount of points he scored there, and it was a disaster on both sides of the ball. Um, you can't unsee it. So, something to monitor, but yeah. it was it was awful, Matt Green. Did not enjoy it. Zero out of ten, no stars. <laughs> Don't want to talk about it anymore. Would not recommend. But yeah, I think going on the road, that was my biggest concern. You've seen, you know, the Kentucky game, they did escape with a win on the road. Um, but you saw Florida play their game of the season uh, at home versus Tennessee. You saw Missouri now play their game of the season at home uh, versus Tennessee. So um, I think, yeah, that, that's that's definitely something you got to get corrected. Uh, being able to go on the road and win in the SEC is not an easy thing to do. Um, did you feel like they gave up on the run? Uh, too early in this game. Like you see, see Jalen Wright with seven carries, uh, Jabari, Saul with, Jabari Small with three carries, Dylan Sampson with three carries, like, and that's pretty much it. And they held this uh, this Tennessee team to 80, 83 yards rushing. Um, it, it just felt like they abandoned the run too early when that's kind of their identity. I mean, this was still a one-score game into the third quarter. It wasn't like it was just a blowout um, from, from the jump. Well, you got to remember... They had three plays in the first quarter. Mizzou had a army-ass drive of 18 plays um, at this point. Like, you look at it, Missouri was just able to keep the ball a bunch. So it's not like Tennessee had a lot of opportunities, especially in the first half, to really establish the run and do anything like that. I think Jalen Wright got cooked. So once he had that fumble and he was, had a couple bad drops out of the backfield, I think he was just kind of out of it. So you can't really go back to him. And then you went to Dylan Sampson a little bit too late uh, in the process. So I probably would have gotten him some more carries. But it was also, here's the problem. You can give him carries. Mizzou kicked the crap out of Tennessee's offensive line. Like, Tennessee, as healthy as they've been on the offensive line this week, like, that was the worst they've played all year. That was the worst Tennessee's offensive line has been pushed around. And the, you didn't see it in the sacks. You just saw it on both sides of the line of scrimmage, where the trenches were won by Mizzou. Mizzou had better offensive linemen and they had better defensive linemen in this game they won that battle so it's like you could run it up but Tennessee couldn't run on them like they just did not have the personnel like if the linemen are getting beat like that like it just especially when the light boxes because Tennessee's spreading you out so much like what do you do like there is no you can run the ball they're not going anywhere though yeah absolutely and um just shout out to Cody Schrader. Just first player in SEC history, 200 yards rushing and 100 yards receiving. Like, that's just stupid. It, it would be, and somehow it was still the second stupidest stat line uh, in the SEC this week. Well, let's get into that, Matt Green, because I have I ask you, LSU, they blow out Florida. Florida now really, I just, I don't think bowl game, it, you're feeling good about a bowl game for Florida right now. Uh, no, I don't know what that Mizzou means. Looks, Mizzou looks even better than we thought kind of uh, a week I mean, Mizzou ago. and Florida State down the stretch here, like, I don't think they're going bowling, Matt Green. We talked about it last week. If Florida would go bowling, this was a game you had to have um, because I think Mizzou is really, really good, and I just watched them beat the crap out of my team, um, and I think Tennessee is better than Florida, even with that early season loss. Um, I mean, my thing, though, is Jaden Daniels the only correct Heisman choice? Because... I don't know how you don't give it to Jaden Daniels at this point. Like he's putting up numbers and he's just an offensive Chico. There's not a 
better offensive player in college football this year in terms of what he is doing to keep his team afloat. Like, the defense is still getting torched. Like, what he did against Mizzou, what he did against Florida now, what he did putting his body on the line against Alabama. Like, Jane Daniels is the Heisman to me. Like, I don't even think it's close at this point. If Jane Daniels finishes the year, he his numbers are so ridiculous. I just don't know how he's not. It's a Johnny Manziel type deal, uh, but just yeah. a bigger version to me. I think he's the Heisman. Do you agree, Matt Green? I agree. And I will also run back that I was just so dead wrong about Jaden Daniels. Mm. Like, this guy was just kind of like that Jalen Hurts kind of mold, uh, just kind of at Alabama, like just kind of the game manager that could run for eight, 900 yards. It's like, that's better than your average game manager. It's better than Greg McElroy for sure. But yeah. This guy is a superstar. Like he has just got legit track speed. Like that that run where he just goes up the left side, gets to the corner, and it's just like he's gone. Like mm. he's just quarterback just ran for eighty five yards. Like he just <laughs> outran the entire defense. Like two hundred and thirty four yards, two touchdowns on the ground. Like twenty yards of carry on the ground, basically. Like 372 yards and three touchdowns. Like this guy's got to be the Heisman right now. It's it's ridiculous what he's doing, especially because LSU can't stop anybody. No. Like it's the offense is having to carry them to every single victory. So it's uh it's absurd what he's doing right now. But yeah, he's definitely the Heisman. I remember um in our just talking with Florida and in my group thread, one of my buddies is a huge Florida fan, and going into the Georgia game, like they're five and two. And he's talking about this is a game for the SEC East, all this. And then the group thread evolves into like, are we sure Florida's going to make a bowl game? It was not the it, – it took a turn that he was not prepared for. And, and now you've seen – what is this? They're sitting at 5-5. Five and five. Um, mm -hmm. What is that, the fourth straight loss? Just the third straight loss. So and, and potentially Also the fifth straight more. loss to LSU. Yeah. So it's uh it's not looking good and and Billy Napier it's just year two you know I hate when the the seat starts to heat up in year two but man year two is a year that a lot of guys show a lot of promise and like we talked about hypo like the year two bump and the year three slump I prepared Tennessee fans for that uh, this off season but when you don't even have a year two bump uh, uh oh like where do we go from here uh it's you miss a bowl game, that's that's a little bit different uh, level than than not making the SEC championship game or something. You know, not going to New Year's Six Bowl, that's one thing. But to miss a bowl game altogether, it, the hot the seats got to warm up in year three. And I don't think they're going at, at Missouri or beating Florida State. Even though that one is at home, that, that would salvage the entire season. Beating Florida State and, you know, that rivalry game – possibly ruining their season and qualifying for a bowl game. I think that would be enough to like just give you enough good vibes. Cause I think that's so much about what college football is. It's like the it's, it's your fans have only a certain number of opportunities to feel good about themselves. They would, they remember feeling really bad losing to rival to getting blown out by rival teams. But even if you go six and six, year two if you're able to spoil florida state's entire season and the swamp is able to go nuts and, and celebrate that in-state rivalry i think that would salvage it but i think i agree at, at this point I'm, I'm not betting on that happening i think florida state's gonna be a two touchdown favorite at least coming into the swamp i mean it was close last year 
And Florida State was definitely better uh, a year ago, and they had it at home. I think it'll be close. I think anyone who's expecting, especially Florida State. I mean, Florida State's talk, a better team this year, though, than they That's were last fine, year. but look at the pick game. Look at Miami. Look at what's yeah. happening here week over week. I mean, Florida State's not blowing out people week over week, and those are dudes with less talent than what Florida's got uh, on their roster. So I don't know. I would still lean Florida State, but it's a road game in the swamp, and Florida will be up for it. Um, for sure. And the, the last thing, just talking about Florida State, when you run through some of these like hypothetical college ball playoff scenarios, like they take care of business they're in, but it does feel like they're kind of playing with fire. Some of these games are getting a little close. I don't know how that uh, wasn't a safety uh, in the Miami game at one point. I can't remember the uh, situation um, when Jordan Travis got tackled uh, at the goal line, but. Um, they're playing a lot of close games. I think they're that team. If if they're a one-loss ACC champion, I think they are going to be on the outside looking in, uh, comparing with some of those other teams' resumes. So they, they're going to have to run the table to to get in. Yeah. Well, we shall see, Matt Green. Um, Penn State. This one's brutal for you. I don't even know if I want to touch this one. <laughs> You're you were all in on Penn State. Like I admired your Penn State optimism. You're a believer this year for this group. Not only did they not beat Ohio State and the offense just completely sputtered, they get Michigan, big noon, at home. The best scenario possible. Jim Harbaugh not allowed to coach Michigan in this <laughs> game at home. They are just somehow worse offensively than what we even saw the week pr- or a few weeks prior against Ohio State. Matt Green, just two gigantic uh, lays of eggs not saying that correctly, but they lay two eggs in two separate games here. I mean, you get a down Ohio state team with Kyle McCord on the road. Like it's tough. It's tough to win there. But to not split these two scenarios, one without Jim Harbaugh, one with a down Ohio state team, Matt green. I, <laughs> if not this year, when was it going to happen it's... for James Franklin in this bunch? Cause it, it just, this has got to be crushing if you're a Penn State fan. I mean, you saw it. Penn State fans were booing mercilessly uh, uh, James Franklin when he was going back into the tunnel with teams. Like, it was pretty brutal to hear the sounds. And, I mean, I I don't know. I just feel like we're at a tipping point with what Franklin can ultimately accomplish at Penn State because the recruiting's been there. They're in the blue chip ratio. They had the talent. They have the five-star quarterback this year, five-star running back. They had continuity on both sides of the ball and coordinators. They had a top five defense in the sport this year. The defense was not the problem in both of these games. The defense was actually really good in both these games for Penn State. Manny Diaz did his job. They just well, got it's, crushed it's, offensively. It's twofold. They, they have a quarterback that was a five-star recruit coming out of high school. Yes. They do not have a five-star quarterback. Yeah. You, if you told me that guy was a former walk-on, I would believe you. Like, if you told me it was Sean Clifford's sixth season, I would believe you. Like, mm. And he just switched does numbers. He deserve like, an apology? Like, I think Sean Clifford deserves an apology by all Penn State probably, fans. Probably. Like, he was, uh, well, I don't know about that. He's just, he's he was average, and Drew Aller's come in, and he's been probably worse than Sean Clifford. He's 100% like, been worse than Sean Clifford. I don't even think there's a question. Defense, yeah, this Penn State defense is loaded, and I, and I still, I think this year is such a giant missed opportunity. It's hard yeah. to say they're a down Ohio State team. They're a different Ohio State team because this defense is, you know, one of the best in college football. They're they're ten and zero. They're a really good team. But I'm with you. It feels like most years they're just. It's unquestioned how much more talented they are than Penn State, and 
they have a quarterback that's going to be a first rounder and their offense mm-hmm. is putting up stupid numbers. And this year they just weren't that. And so you went on the road to a team that's not a great offense and your defense played well, but your offense did absolutely nothing. And then you got Michigan at home. Are we sure Jim Harbaugh is still alive? Is after that uh, Sharon Moore post game, man, I was I wasn't sure if he was locked up or something. But um, reports made the point where still... it's like this is how it is for everybody though. Because someone asked like a non college football fan, it's like, oh, this is like a cult. It's like a cult in Michigan. I'm like, have you are you new to the sport? Like, guess what? Mike Bobo or probably not Mike Bobo. Will Muschamp definitely does an interview like that for Kirby Smart after Kirby if he was oh. in a similar situation. Like he gets super upset and fired up and after like, after they're caught cheating and then it gets Yeah, like Tennessee would do the same thing. Like it's every every school when there's this much money on the line and the cult of all these different programs. Yeah, it's a cult following. Like um, I'm sorry. Are you new to this sport? Yeah, they're all they all take it way too seriously. And it's yeah. everything is personal and everything it's against Michigan. It's against everybody is now the moniker. Guess what? Tennessee versus everybody was a thing after the Jeremy Pruitt stuff. Like every like, guess what? This is how it's going to go. Like you're going to see. I'm just talking about the tears. I just, yeah, I'm not disagreeing. It was a little I, over the top. I don't know where we're going with the tears. I fucking love Jim Harbaugh. Yeah. I love you, Jim. This is for you. Like. I don't know. It was just so over the top. But, uh, you know, hopefully Jim Harbaugh is safe and uh, one day he'll be back on the sideline. But but no, I think this Penn State, ultimately, if you're giving up 287 yards on uh, by the other team's offense, like your defense is playing well. But the ultimate way I was wrong about this game is I thought Penn state was going to at least slow Michigan's run game down and JJ McCarthy was going to have to beat them. And that's not what happened at all. They ran the ball 32 straight times at one point. Like McCarthy had eight pass attempts. Like they were just picking up four or five yards every single time, busting a few here and there. And it's like, we're not going to throw the ball if you can't, if you can't consistently stop us. So Penn State got some stops defensively, but if you're giving up, what was it, 250 yards on, on the ground, 230 yards on the ground, like it's hard to call that a, a great performance, but I, I the, still the loss more than anything is, is on the shoulders of the offense because like they're down. Also, I don't know why James Franklin is, is chasing points in the second quarter, like 14 to nine, kick the extra point, and it's 14 10 going into half. Like, I don't know what you're doing there, but. He's down. They're down 17-9 for like most of the second half. Like that's one touchdown. And I'm we're, I'm watching this game like this lead is insurmountable. Where where is Penn State on the field? 70 uh 30 yard line? No no chance they go 70 yards. Like it was just for to be down one score for most of the second half, it felt like they were they were getting blown out. It felt like they had no chance to win the game. So a lot of the credit obviously has to go to Michigan. Their defense is really good and obviously their offensive line is is loaded. But it felt like I was watching a bad offense on Penn State more than watching a good defense just put the shackles on somebody, if that's fair. Well, they also made an adjustment here. Uh, Mike Yersich is out after this loss, so they will be in the market for new OC. Someone uh, made the found a scapegoat that. at least. Hey, but also, you know, the answer is it's Joe Moorhead. Like we've seen him have success. Like he was the OC that got away. He immediately gets the Mississippi State job after a year of doing really well at Penn State. Um, he's a good offensive mind. I think that would be a, the probably where you want to start. Um, I like his offense. I like what he can do and shake things up. Be very different than what they've been doing the last couple of years. But I don't know. It just uh, I don't know if that's gonna be enough. It kind of feels like that's your last scapegoat here. If you're James Franklin, is hey, it's the offense. It's not me. <laughs> like it's uh, 
it's the offense. So we'll see um, if the next OC is able to finally get them over the hump. But uh, that will be a question for next year. Uh, final thing here in terms of the big games of the weekend, Matt Green. Bama blows out Kentucky. I don't know why that line was really low uh, this past week. That was a weird one. That felt like a lock. Why, why are people in on Kentucky at home here against Bama? Um, Bama blows them out. Milrow, six TDs. And Bama versus Georgia is officially set, Matt Green. It's been a couple years now uh, since we've seen these two foes face off. Bama playing really, really good football. Jalen Milrow playing at another level the last few weeks. Um, Carson Beck playing at another level the last few weeks. Um, I think just as a college football fan, this is where you wanted to be because I think these two are going to be really fun to watch going head to head in Atlanta. But what say you based on what you've seen from this Bama team? And, uh, does it concern you a little bit to get this iteration in Atlanta? Are you kind of nervous about playing them? Sir, have you learned nothing? I went, I'm from the school of Kirby smart, sir. We're just focused on Tennessee right now. Mm. We gotta, we gotta get past the volunteers. I'm trying to get you past Tennessee. I want you to overlook it. We can't look ahead. We're looking at Tennessee. This is a business trip right now. We got plenty of weeks to talk about Alabama, Georgia. Um, uh, but no, I think Alabama is, you know, I think the sec West is down on, on the whole. Like if you look at it's LSU, the second best team in the West or Ole Miss, like, I don't, I think most years that that's pretty bad for LSU. How good as good as their offense is like for the second best team in the SEC West to be giving up like whatever, 35 points a game or whatever they're giving up this year, like their offense or their defense is just awful. So I feel like Alabama's kind of taking advantage of a weaker SEC West. Like after Ole Miss, who is it like A&M? Like Mm. they just fired their head coach. Like Arkansas is bad. Mississippi state's bad. Auburn is going to a bowl game, but they're not good. Um, and, and, you know, Alabama hasn't gone to Jordan hair yet. So weird things can happen in, in Jordan hair, but yeah, I think, um, right now, Alabama is definitely playing the best ball they've played all season. I'm just still skeptical that like that Jalen Milrow is going to be able to do, you know, what he's done in some of these games for LSU. Cause I mean, you look at what some of these, what he's done against teams like Tennessee and Texas A&M, like. He was basically, you know, held to nothing in the run game. And so if he's having to win these games with his arm, like he was able to do it at Texas A&M. But um, I think it's I'm still a little skeptical. This this defense is is definitely playing well. This defense is, you know, is legit. But I uh, right now, Georgia looks like the better team. I think they'll definitely be favored um, in that matchup. But. I don't know. It's it's hard to see a more complete team right now in college football on both sides of the ball uh, than Georgia. Yeah, but hey, it's going to be fun because I think this uh, Alabama team is going to test them. The way they're playing right now, I think you're going to get a good game and I think it's going to be a good back and forth uh, neutral side game. So it's the last iteration of the East and West uh, divisions and I think it kind of yeah. makes sense. Kind of, It's very poetic that we're ending with uh, Georgia, Alabama before. Yeah, this uh, is, yeah, this will be Georgia's sixth uh, SEC championship appearance in the last seven years. Like mm. uh, Kirby's really taken a hold of the SEC East, uh, the, the the last of the SEC East, like you're saying. But um, when, what is this? This is the third or fourth. And is, this is the fourth uh, Georgia, Alabama. I think, what is it? 2012, 2018, uh, 2021. And now, uh, 2023 i think so yeah this will be the fourth georgia alabama uh we've seen i know we've seen hmm. what at least there's at least five or six i think georgia or i think florida alabama is still the most common sec championship and then uh georgia lsu i think have played like four like four or five times too 
So, uh, yeah, Georgia, Alabama definitely feels right. We're, the SEC championship's not going anywhere. but So uh, we'll still have it. It won't be this SEC East and SEC West, but we could still see plenty of more uh, Georgia, Alabama dates uh, in Atlanta in the future. And, and Georgia has, has yet to beat Alabama in Atlanta. You obviously hmm. include that, uh, that 2017 national championship uh, along with that list. And uh, it's, it hasn't been great. Uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium or the Georgia Dome uh to georgia when they play alabama in that building well there you go um but we shall see that's a couple weeks down the line like you said tennessee georgia week a little bit different than it was the main thing the main thing sir we're focused on going to knoxville right now well this weekday show we'll do in a couple days here as our preview for week 12 in the college football season uh we'll get fun uh excited to talk all things tennessee georgia some other games it's kind of a off week for every sec school just about um outside of georgia and tennessee uh this weekend but um it'll be fun i'll be in the building it'll uh we'll see how it goes but uh the preview coming up uh later this week and all that good stuff so matt yeah, green nice. anything else it was nice having seven sec uh games this past weekend mm. uh, just everyone playing each other uh we don't have a, quite as many of the november cupcakes but there are a few on the on the docket for next week. But uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited for it. Tennessee, Georgia, three thirty. It should be a should be a good one. Let's hope so. Uh, let's hope so because I'll be in attendance. I don't want to just freeze and also just watch Tennessee get their brains beat in at home. That would that'd be great. Uh, Matt Green, always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Tennessee Sports Guys with fellow Tennessee Volunteer Sports Guys, Ryan Shumpert of Rocky Top Insider. Ryan, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Oh, wow. That that's was all it. I got for you. That's, that was, yeah, that's all I got for you. That was concise. That was unbelievably concise and something that I didn't have an alternative to. I was expecting a little bit. The man misses one Tennessee football game, gets to relax over the weekend, and he's just... He's out of his element. He's he's not fired up. You didn't have the energy for me yesterday uh, in the group chat, and you're still just pretty pretty low key right now, Ryan. Well, this is pretty misleading that I just got to relax over the weekend. I got four hours of sleep over a 36 hour span covering mm-hmm. Tennessee basketball and trying to get home uh, on on Saturday. So I'm not sure I'd go quite that far, but yeah, no, uh, a little under the weather, a little tired, but trying to to get the juice ready to match it tonight. Oh, the juice is coming because Jack Foster is here to push back against uh, all of my worst Tennessee volunteer tendencies. Jack Foster of Always College Football. Jack, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, been a heck of a travel weekend, just like yep. Ryan's had. So, two Como and, you know, didn't get a lot of sleep last night, but some. So, ready to roll for this podcast and talk about the worst loss of the Hypel era. Is that official? Are we claiming this is the worst loss of the Hypel era? We have to. Okay, make the case. Why is this the worst? Ryan's going to push back on this. I'm going to see. But, Jack, why is this the worst loss in the Hypel era? I guess I should have done more research, more numbers to back it up because I'm sure I could find some. But I know it's the lowest points. Yep. Total, yes, scored while at Tennessee. I'm pretty sure it's the largest point differential. South Carolina's 25. So, yeah, yeah, it's the most points Tennessee's lost by under Josh Hypel. And, yeah, the. The magnitude surrounding the game is not the same as South Carolina, but with the way Tennessee lost, just bad, bad defensively on the road again, and offense couldn't move the ball. If it wasn't for 
the most improbable touchdown they've scored this season, they get blanked. So, and it, and it happened to a Missouri team that, you know, I just feel like Tennessee should have been able to beat. I don't know. It, I can see the argument for South Carolina, but there are a lot of other circumstances that kind of happened in that game with Hendon and, you know, all the drama that is still, we don't know, but all that, all that side of the story too. So I put this as the biggest loss at the hype player. Well, I think it's fair to, I mean, right. When you look at that with what Jack's pointing out here is that I think the difference, and I think there's like some revisionism about what happened at South Carolina last year, where, the offense was moving fine. Like the offense was shredding South Carolina and they were in that game in the fourth quarter before Hendon went down uh, with the torn ACL. And I understand part of it was just the defense was so bad. South Carolina wasn't slowing down Tennessee, like offensively. No, but Tennessee was down two possessions. Sure. But like things could happen because this Tennessee team can score in a hurry. You never know. Like with the Tennessee offense. They didn't get to stop the whole game. So mathematically possible they didn't get to stop the whole game and they would have had to get one and score every possession just to get the game into overtime right but this one you look at both sides of the ball where you there it's a collective failure just about everywhere you look like this is one where like jack said seven points lowest of the hypo era i don't think i ever thought we would see a seven point game from the hype player I, I didn't have that on my bingo card at all uh he used the word disappointed a lot in the post-game presser um I mean, you were on the grounds, Jack. What was it like? What was the what did it look like post game, and just how how demoralized did it, did it kind of seem? And do you do you have real concerns about how this permeates over into the next two weeks for Tennessee's football team? Uh, I'll answer the first part first. Certainly deflating, right? And I think you saw a lot of anger after Alabama, and it was not that way. I, there was hardly any anger from Hypel. I got that sense. It was just like as he was saying disappointment and deflation it was just you know not just lifeless i guess is a word you could use too i mean he was he was coach speak he was answering the questions just you know by the book but outside of that not much to offer and then the players you know there was a healthy gap between the end of the game and when they talked to the media so i thought they were pretty good all things considered um and you know taking accountability and all that stuff as far as moving forward in the next couple of weeks I, that's that's a question I don't think I can answer. I'm very curious to see what Tennessee does to bounce back from that. I mean, you have Georgia coming to your house. You can spin that as a good thing or you can spin that as a bad thing. And I think there's arguments for both. But that's probably what I'm keeping. Obviously, the closest eye on heading into next week is just how they respond from something like that. Do you all remember what the line was for Tennessee-Georgia two years ago at home? I do not. Let's see if I can find it on ESPN, but I don't. One thing I will say on uh, the deflation aspect of it, mm-hmm. I thought our Rocky Top Insider, like the pin photo uh, for Heupel's press conference was like, just had that vibe. So he's just like, so he's sitting down, which he's standing up most of the time in these post-game press conferences. And he's just, in this one, he's just sitting down, he's slumped and he's like looking down and uh, yeah, the very, very deflating. It, it felt like, obviously I wasn't there, but that I felt like Jack did a good job of painting the picture of, of what what he sounded like and looked like talking about it and i just we never i think this is kind of uncharted waters i mean the difference with last year was tennessee got up i mean hendon was gone and they had a reason to fight right like they wanted to finish it out strong for hendon and was obviously on the sideline for the following week um he was still with the team he was still a heavy part and you also could spend it as like hey jeremy banks wasn't there defensively that happened uh we'll clean that up the following week 
but like I don't know where you go to get up off the mat now because you don't that you have nothing to play for down the stretch. You have a Georgia team that just made a top ten team in Ole Miss look like they just didn't belong in the same stratosphere as uh, as Georgia. But then on the flip side, we've seen this before with Hypels teams at, at Tennessee. They can look really really bad on the road in the SEC, and they're they haven't lost a home game since Georgia in twenty twenty one. So it's like. It's, it's so hard for me to balance like how much you should be panicking as a Tennessee fan down the stretch here when you consider that you're at home the rest of the way and you've been really, really good at home uh, to this point uh, in the hypo tenure. And I mean, it's a difference between eight and four, nine and three, uh, potentially uh, these last two weeks. But I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I just I've gone back and forth on this sentiment of like how much panic and how much you should read into uh, the disappointment and uh, Ryan, you talking about how he was sitting and the disappointment. I think they were just stunned uh, to get obliterated on both sides of the ball that uh, to that extent. I don't think Heupel could have ever foreseen a second half like that where and I can I can understand where things were looking really good when Jalen Wright before the Jalen Wright fumble. Right. Like you're you didn't you had some really bad luck where the offense only has three plays in the first quarter. You're like, what are the odds of that happening again? Like we'll we'll be fine. We'll we'll figure it out. That's not going to happen again. But then to just have that kind of swing and to lose the middle eight in that way, I think was kind of stunning uh, for Heupel to see it go that way. And then the defense not to not to have their head in the game and just to allow Schrader to get the team back into field goal range uh, right before the kick. And you're just like, oh, this is this might be over. Like that was like one of those where you're like, we've seen how Heupel's teams have come out in the second half in the SEC on the road. They haven't been good. Um, it's been an issue for years now. I don't know. I don't know how much we can pull from it, but I also I, I understand fans who are extremely concerned about how the rest of the season goes. And I also understand the people who are like, hey, we're back at home and I've seen this team bounce back at home in a strong way. And also, if you had told anybody before the year, hey, it was eight and four or nine and three uh, for this Tennessee team in a gap year with Joe Milton and company, I think most fans probably would have been okay with that right but then you actually see it play out and you're like oh this is what eight and four nine and three could look like sometimes where it's just you have some really ugly losses some second halves that should not have happened you lose in a rough way to a bad florida team um i don't know it's uh it's interesting i I, i'm just kind of i'm i'm still all over the place as you can see 24 hours out (laughs) yeah i I think think go ahead jack i'm just gonna say and this is across the sport and i feel like you see it a lot this year um, where it's hard to college football is far from an exact science and it's hard to make sense of a lot of trends you see like, Hey, Oklahoma state won bedlam, but then they get absolutely mm-hmm. shellacked 45 to three to UCF. So much of it is hangover and teams mm-hmm. getting up to play a team. I think Missouri was fired up to play Tennessee yeah. and, you know, given what Eli Drinkwood said directly after the game, you could tell it was a little bit personal for him yesterday and maybe Tennessee was just a little lackadaisical. This could be a game where Tennessee really gets up, and I think that would be huge credit to Heupel if we see them play with a lot of intensity next week against Georgia. But it could also be very deflating. I could see it going one extreme to the other. I don't know which one's going to happen, but you know, as someone who's looking at this Tennessee program and hoping it doesn't spiral completely, you at least want to see Tennessee come out with that edge of, hey, we have nothing to lose next week. And no pressure. Definitely. It's not like there's just a bunch of five stars and big time recruits on campus this weekend. For yeah, this you, that's just you can't. Yeah, you, you mm. just can't. I mean, I don't really think about any of that stuff when I'm 
Yeah, I don't put much stock in. Yeah. Recruits don't commit because teams play well in games they go to visits. I mean, I get the yeah. general momentum standpoint as a whole, but I don't think it matters if a bunch of recruits are going to be there from that standpoint. Mm. I will say, Chase, to your point, Tennessee was 19 and a half point favorites two years ago, and they okay. opened as nine point favorites this season. Obviously, I think that line's already moved north of 10. Um, but it's viewed as a much more even game, and mm. it's one that it's what we've said all year. Like, Georgia's not. I don't know. Maybe they will be. But there's a lot of things to point to Georgia not being very revved up for this game. Mm. And that plays at Tennessee's advantage. I think Brock Bowers being back puts a lot of, I don't know, is uh, what the word I'm looking for is, but it's kind of a muzzle on the optimism of Tennessee truly being able to pull off the upset. Um, but Georgia's killed two straight teams. I mean, Tennessee was so lifeless yesterday. Like, Kirby Smart shouldn't even show his team the Missouri-Tennessee game tape. Like, that's – that's not what he should do this week. So uh, I'm with you. I think I could be going in, in two radical directions. And I think to the point you said, like most fans would have been fine with eight and four, nine and three. I think most fans would have been okay with nine and three. And I think eight and four lesser. And that's why I think this game, you say this game doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean anything. And I, or they're not playing for anything. And I, I get what you're saying. They're eliminated in the East, but, and I know the Tennessee players don't think this way, but man, Tennessee's been, they haven't been planning for anything since they lost in the game school. I mean, the season achieving anything was over from that point, from a championship winning the East perspective. Uh, and I know the players don't think about like that until it's really dead, but I think there is certainly a path to Hypel being able to get his team fired up and buying into Georgia. I mean, they haven't lost in 27 games. They're the best program. I know they might not be number one in the country, but they're the best program. And I think they're still the best team in the country. So, I definitely agree that it could go very dramatically one way or the other. Um, I'm just not sure I completely – I'm completely buying the, oh, Tennessee's players are just – they don't have anything to play for now because they can't win the East. Well, they didn't have a chance to win the East in any realistic sense after they lost that Florida game. I'm maybe most nervous just the injuries. Like, Dante Thornton, I don't know what the update is there, but he finally breaks through and has a big touchdown, one of the best touchdown catches. I mean, yeah. him and Squirrel both – uh, unbelievable touchdown catches this year for Tennessee. I mean, you're really, really thin now at wide receiver. And obviously the strength with Georgia this year is not their front seven. It's been their back end with Lassiter, with Starks and those guys where I, <laughs> you have a very inexperienced group now um, out wide. And I just, I think they're going to have a lot of trouble um, separating and really creating uh, any kind of havoc on the perimeter against Georgia, even at home. And we saw, like, I mean, the <laughs> Jalen Wright is. Does he bounce back? Like, I worry about that. I mean, the fumbles. He hasn't had that issue in a while. But I mean, he was definitely not himself after the fumble, and then really wasn't used uh, in the second half. Um, going from there, so is he able to get back uh, into good graces? Like, is there concern there? Because that's then you're just in dire straits against Georgia if Jalen's not able to shake off Como and bounce back and this team's not able to trust them uh, themselves to run the football even at home i don't know then you're really looking at a dark scenario at home yeah i do think georgia's rush defense is gettable um mm. i don't know number any numbers off the top of my head but it just feels like they have not been the same rush defense they've been in the last two years and i am confident in tennessee's ability to bounce back and you know one guy that's certainly going to be hungry next week is dylan sampson it wasn't yeah. quite the florida game he had more than zero touches but it, he wasn't utilized that much against Missouri at all. So I would expect, you know, him to see maybe a little bit more workload next week and try to do a lot with it as, you know, 
opportunities for the remainder of the season. Look, these guys only have three more games to play, so they yeah. know that. For sure. Um, biggest moment of the game for you, uh, Ryan Chemper, it was what? Just the sequence right before the half where as bad as Tennessee played, like you you put it some on bad luck, and it is like kind of bad luck, coincidental, like odd quirky. Mm. Quirky is how I describe it more than bad luck. Tennessee had the ball for three plays because they went three and out, and Missouri got five straight third down yeah. conversions the next drive. Like that wasn't unlucky. That was Tennessee's not being able to get Missouri in the third and long and not being able to get off the field on third and short and third and intermediate. But after all of that, they're staring down at the very least seemingly tying the game with the field goal before getting the ball to start the second half and potentially taking the lead. Like that's Tennessee was thoroughly outplayed and you looked up with two minutes or so when Tennessee's on that drive and it's like Tennessee has a great chance to not only take control of the game, but like add some distance here if they can put two good drives together and they were putting one together. I'm still a little skeptical that they score given how bad their red zone offense is, especially when they have to pass, which they would have given the time. But to do that, the fumble, and then for Missouri to basically surrender and say, we'll go into the locker room with a three-point lead and to get gashed for a 35-yard run and give up, you know, even after that, like Harrison Evans is a good kicker with a long range. Tennessee was playing like loose, soft coverage, giving Missouri eight yards on a quick pass and then on a run again. And Nevins gets they get well into his range and he knocks it through. So to me, that was the biggest sequence. Um, and then I would just go on everything I just said about how bad Tennessee had played and had all those chances. Well, they just really messed up again <laughs> for the 30 to make it 30 straight minutes of bad football. And they have the ball to open the second half and you go score a touchdown, you're ahead and you're very much in, in the game. And they go out and <laughs> Joe Milton rifles a lot or a a rocket launcher at Jalen Wright's gut on the speed option from five feet away. And obviously it's not an offense that can overcome second and 18. No. And that's not something you could, you would say a, a year ago, uh, but definitely the case uh, this year. Uh, Jack, was that the biggest moment in sequence for you or is it something else? Yeah, I think it's still the biggest moment. We'd be talking about a lot more if the game was closer, just about how Tennessee, you know, missed out on that six point swing there. Yeah. Obviously Ryan, you know, talked about it perfectly but also just coming out at halftime and the, th the quick three and out in missouri going mm -hmm. down the court scoring when tennessee gets down 12 points in a second half you just know that it's probably not going to end well this team does not have the offensive firepower to be able to mount a comeback and especially on the road they really struggled to respond to adversity and that showed again last night or yeah yesterday on saturday against missouri so when missouri scored to make it a 12 point game i you know, always ha always ref uh, go back to this feeling of when I knew whoever was going to win the game was going to win the game, and that was the time where I was like, okay, Tennessee's probably going to lose. Well, it's also, for me, um, my biggest moment was, hey, um, Heupel has now gone way too conservative on punting. Now that he's found Jackson Ross is awesome, and Jackson Ross... Uh, uh, Jackson Ross, you heard about him? Have you have you seen this? Jackson Ross, the, the Aussie punter? He's pretty good. He's uh, He was really good in this game again. Here's the problem with that. He should not have been punting much yesterday because that defense could not get off the field. And you have to read the room a little bit where it's like, hey, you were a little bit too aggressive at the middle point of this season. Uh, Heupel uh, made some uh, choices <laughs> deep in his own territory that I would not have agreed with. Um, and I think we've talked about on this podcast where he was a little overzealous uh, with some fourth down play calls, especially when the fourth down play calls were just runs at the middle that just have not worked all season long. But... 
there is something where it's like I I said in the group chat where I was like, you can't punt at the end of the third quarter like that. You're down two scores going into the fourth. Like you can't do that. I, I just I understand you're still on your side of the field, but you need to be operating on the assumption that your defense is not going to get a stop. Like there's no answer for Cody Schrader and Brady Cook at this point in time. Like the linebackers have lost. They, the over the middle is going to be open the rest of this game. Elijah Herring and Caleb Perry and company could not and Jeremiah T. Lander and everybody else could not stay with them like it was just I mean Elijah Herring was the lowest graded uh vol uh and if you watch the game you saw that was evidently clear um that all has to be taken into account of like all right y'all uh we're I understand Jackson's awesome and he can pin them up a little bit here but here's the thing they're gonna drive down the field anyway so you can pin them up at the 12 to 15 it's just gonna take longer for us to get the ball back when we punt it and you have to just kind of I understand it's hard but you should have lost faith in the defense early on in that game that you didn't have the personnel that was going to be able to make plays to get you back in the game. The offense was going to have to carry the load. When you have seven points at that point in time, what do you have to lose? Like you're not winning the game no matter what, when you're not, when you're running the ball the way you are, when you're not able to stop anybody the way you are. I I think it was kind of egregious to punt there. Cause I think it was just a, a understanding that we can't win this football game. That was a, that was a, just a, a waving the white flag to me. And it, it really annoyed yeah. me. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I would say that's the only punt, though, to me that was like a mm. clearly bad call. Yeah. You kind of talked about it like there are implied there's multiple. The only other one that was debatable was the first drive. And, yeah. you know, that at that point probably would have been a little argued. You know, I would have argued it was over aggressive if they hadn't gotten it. So I, I would agree there. Watching. But you're, you're exactly right. And it's even it's even worse. You said it was on their own side of the field. It was already 38 yard line. Like, yeah, it, they were trotting. Obviously, I'm at home, so I can't see. They're trot, I can tell they're running people on the field. And I'm like, is that the goal? Are they going to try to field goal here? Like, surely yeah. they're not punting it. And they were punting it. So, no, you're right. And uh, at that point, it was obvious. And that was – and I know we always hit on them, and I have a couple other ones, but I'll do it now. You said what, what, one of your biggest takeaways from the game and 24 hours later, one of them is that Hypo both surrender punted and surrender field goals. I mean, yes. you want to talk about a guy that was deflated and disappointed and beaten. I mean, he – again, to have a surrender punt, especially <laughs> when the game's technically still in play, like it's a two-possession game, uh, on top of a surrender field goal was – yeah, it was pretty telling. Man, um, should Jack? I'm putting this to you first. Should there be firings after the season of any kind, based on what we saw from this defense last week, from what we've seen from uh, different position groups? Can Hypel sell running this exact staff back next year, or do you think we've seen enough at this point that you have, especially coming out of the Como game, that there have to be staff changes going into next year, year four? I mean, I hate say I, I'm just not the guy that's like fire this person, fire that person. That's just not who I am. I, especially while there's still games to be played during the season, I don't know, it's just not something I really get into. But I mean, you have seen quite a handful of defensive meltdowns on the road, and you know, South Carolina was the secondary. I think the linebacker play was the biggest reason for Missouri. So there's different areas to point to. Um, pass rush also struggled to get home again. So I don't want to put it on one position coach for all this, but it is an alarming trend of Tennessee's defense having a lack of discipline on the road and not being able to respond at all when they're getting punched in the mouth on the road. And, mm-hmm. and it's just on the road. I want to emphasize that because yeah. the defense has been mostly pretty good at home throughout Tim Banks's tenure. So that's certainly an alarming trend, but Again, I don't feel comfortable saying he just needs to go no matter what. Isn't that funny, though, when people talk about hype on the road? I'm like, are y'all watching these games? Outside of what we saw yesterday, 
it's not the offense. It's really been uh, all that much of them. Like, I, does Heupel's offense travel on the road? I don't think that's an issue. I mean, I understand that there's the crowd noise sometimes we see, but like by and large, I think you're going to struggle on the road at Georgia. You're going to struggle on the road at Alabama and a lot of those places, no matter what uh, kind of offense you're running. The defense has not traveled on the road to your yeah. point, Jack. And that's one that, I mean, again, we're entering year three, but Ryan, for me, when it comes to the defense, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot over the last 24 hours, and I think I said in the group chat where it's like, you look at who's on the field. I'm a big, like, <laughs> players, blue chippers, they matter uh, in a significant way. Um, with all the problems Alabama's had, um, they're still one loss team that ha- controlled their own playoff destiny because I mean, there is something to be said about having 90% uh, blue chippers on your roster that just figure it out. Uh, even when there are coaching limitations, because I still don't think it's a great coaching staff and one of the weakest of the Nick Saban era, and they still might stumble into the playoff and beat Jordan in the SEC title game, this, that, and the other. I think for me, what I struggle with is like a chicken and the egg thing. Is it just they still don't have anywhere near close uh, of the kind of depth to be a good road defense to withstand a full year? Because these November meltdowns, if y'all recall, part of what's happening on this defense is Rutgers having to play you're looking at some of these guys in the South Carolina game or yeah in the South Carolina game a year ago where turnage is asked to play a big role I mean you lose Burrell early last year if you look at the injuries to the secondary to the linebackers this year I just it's so hard for me to like be really really upset because I'm like hey like there's some real issues here the zone stuff and just playing off these guys when they're just cooking you and not adapting not really utilizing linebacker blitzes all that much not Aaron Beasley's kind of fallen out of uh in a major way which i didn't see coming uh this year he's been mostly forgettable um the last few weeks but look like keenan pilly looked like he was gonna be the part and keenan pilly would have been really nice to have uh in this game uh, against the cody schrader elijah herring's just not a starting linebacker in this league like he's just not like is he a third or fourth guy sure is he a starter no and you look at this kale perry's on jeremiah tlander is learning on the fly like he's out there in major minutes you lose arian carter for the year you have Brandon Turnage, Warren Burrell. Like, you have a bunch of dudes out there um, that it's just, it's not, it's a bunch of three stars. Like, it's a bunch of guys who have been there for a while. They like the vets, but there's just not the kind of talent on that defensive side of the ball that's just going to carry over. And I just wonder how much of the issues is just that, like, Tennessee just doesn't have dudes yet. Like they, the, this last class, Ricky Gibson looks like he's going to be a good player. I like T Lander. I like Aaron Carter. Hobbs is a good player. James Pierce is breaking out, but like you need a whole lot more because injuries happen every football season. And Tennessee has quietly been destroyed uh, on uh, the back end with injuries this year. And I, I think that has to be a factor in how you view what's happening here uh, with this group. And it's also like, you should have addressed it more like Gabe Judy Lolly's really uh, come into his own down the stretch. I think he's been solid on that opposite corner spot. But I mean, losing Kamal Haddon clearly a factor too. Uh, the last few weeks, like that's that was tough. Um, we like we said, uh, Peely being out for the year and that being your big linebacker placeholder uh, for this group to let Arian and Jeremiah get get ready. But I don't know. I think that's a fair argument. It doesn't absolve the coaching staff as a whole, but I do think it's something that has to be considered when you look at just who's playing uh, meaningful snaps for Tennessee right now, Ryan. Definitely. I would push back on that. They've been destroyed by injuries. I mean, they've had some big in the linebacker injuries. room. They've had Keenan Peely is a big loss. Yeah. I, I'm still not, I mean, it's a big loss. I'm still not buying that. He was going to be amazing. I mean, he might've been, we saw him play 20 snaps. It's hard for yeah. me to say. And Aaron Carter's tough. I, 
And Kamal Hatton's the big loss, but besides yeah. that, I mean, they've had some guys banged up and injured, at, but it's not I mean, like... Danico Slaughter only has played a little bit, and he's been in and out of the lineup. Uh, Warren Burrell uh, been in and out of the lineup. Brandon Turner's been in and out of the lineup. Yeah, but those guys aren't those guys aren't big losses. Like, yeah. that's... Danico Slaughter, if, gave, if Kamal Hatton never gets hurt, is playing 10 snaps a game. And yeah. I do think that kind of goes back to, to your point, though, like, Tennessee's depth has improved defensively to the point where they can play they can spell starters for 15, 20 snaps a game at these yeah. spots, and they, they're fine with that. But when those starters get hurt and these backups have to step in and play 50, 60, or 40, 50 snaps a game, that's where it yeah. is. They don't have the talent. And I think you're right. Like, I don't have an answer to your question. I think it's a very good one of how much of it is coaching, how much of it's just not having enough talent yet. And I think Tim Banks is, you know, a fascinating debate on – whether he'll come back because he's had some really good, like he's had some really good games and really good performances and also some really inexcusably bad ones. So uh, that will be interesting. I will say just as a whole, this offseason, and particularly December, January, it's going to be fascinating because yeah, I think you get in summer and you get into it. There's not going to be a ton of pressure on Hypel. Like he's not going to enter next season on any sort of even warm seat, let alone hot seat. But this will be the first time where it's like, real disappointment after a season they're going to need to hit the portal hard harder than they've hit it and you know i'm kind of with jack i don't just point and see like there's just someone that's you know you got to fire him but Mm -hmm. there are very serious questions and musings about whether you need to make some moves on the defensive staff so i think all that combines for what's going to be a really fascinating december and january obviously we'll talk a lot more about it when we get there after these next two games but it will be fascinating to see what happens Jack, um, wh- what are you, what did you think coming into this game that was going to happen that did not come to fruition? What did you think in your preview when you're outlining how Mizzou would go? What did not happen that you were pretty confident was going to happen? I did not think Cody Schrader would look like Barry Sanders against Tennessee. <laughs> uh, let me put it that way. It's a start. Uh, look, Ray Davis entered the Kentucky-Tennessee game as the SEC's leader in rush yards. Tennessee held them to under three yards carry. And, yeah. you know, Tennessee's rush defense has been so good in recent history. And I just – I didn't expect them – you know, I thought it was a possibility, but I didn't, like, expect them to just completely shut them down. Yeah. But, my goodness, did not expect over 300 yards from scrimmage. Um, I can see how the – him getting open in the receiving game and, you know, breaking a couple – you know, getting a lot of yak is possible against this Tennessee defense with some porous play in the second and third level. But to have 200 yards rushing was very, very shocking. And then on the flip side, I just thought Tennessee would run the ball better too. Uh, Jalen Wright had a 14-yard run outside of that. It was six carries for eight yards. It was the worst game he's had this season. And I, I think Tennessee just kind of gets a little, in a little bit of an, a rut offensively when things aren't going their way. And they don't really stick to the plan. I don't like their – if they don't, I don't like their plan when mm. you know, things don't go their way early. But I expected Tennessee to run the ball better. I didn't expect Cody Trader to have a huge career day like he did. So that was uh, the biggest difference in the game. And the worst part of the Schrader part of it was that, like, you just knew it was going to continue until the game was over. Like, there was no answer. Like, Tennessee had nothing they could do with that, where it's just like, who, what linebacker are you putting on him? What what are you doing in the middle of this game to stop uh, Schrader from absolutely eviscerating you? How are you? What linebacker is staying with Brady Cook on third and long? 
when he decides to run. Yeah. Who's doing it? Like there was no answer. It was uh, it was devastating. Uh, just well, the, the, the rush lane that or or yeah. Brady Cook just having four third down conversions with his legs. To me, that's almost more deflating. I'm just like immune to that now. Like I just assume. Yeah, that's more that's more deflating, but it wasn't that surprising. Yeah, that, that's a good point. That's Isn't that the worst indictment of the defensive staff though? Maybe is that we're not yeah. surprised. Like third and long is a that's it. <laughs> I'm actually surprised when you do get a stop from a quarterback run on third and long with this Tennessee defense over the last three years. I think that might be a damning indictment, right? Yeah, no, it definitely could be. And I, I mean, again, that's where Brady Cook's like, yeah, he's pretty mobile. Yeah, but it's been much more like get out of the pocket and make throws. That's where I yeah. just felt like there some of their rush lanes were so bad when they would when they would do stunts and the defensive tackle would not get out to have be anywhere near. I mean, how many of those Brady Cook runs did he break towards one side and there was nobody in the vicinity? Yeah, like, it was just easy, easy runs. It wasn't like Matt Corral, who I actually went back and looked this up like maybe a month ago, did run for like 175 yards <laughs> that game. But at least those runs were like. Oh my gosh, Mac Corral! How did how in the world did he get out of that? Or that was yeah. a great design by Kiffin to block the spy with a with the center on the play. Like those, it was just everything was easy for Brady Cook scrambling in that game. And that again, I don't think necessarily was that shocking, but that was maybe something that was a little bit different about it, which is how bad I thought Tennessee's rush lanes were. Um, the best and worst from Josh Heupel this week. If you had to do, go positive, I know it's a little bit harder this week, but uh, Jack, what was the best thing you saw from him in this team this week? And what was the worst thing you saw from Heupel? Uh, as in a certain play? Certain play, certain decision, certain call. We've talked about punts, different things. What would you say is the best thing he did in a positive way first and then the worst? Hmm, well, the worst, yeah, I just don't, like the, the giving up towards the end, the punt. And yeah. honestly, the field goal just, it makes me very angry watching that as, as just a football, a fan of football. Like, why are you kicking the field goal? I, yeah. I just don't get it. And it goes back to the timeout, the end of Florida. I don't, I don't know what Hypel's doing here at the end of games. It's, it's a little weird, but that, that was certainly my least favorite of Hypel. Um, you know, it's easy to go back to this play because they're only touchdown, but I, I really liked, you know, the play call to get Dante Thornton one-on-one and just throw a deep yeah. one long and send a message early. And I, I like that play. And, and they audible that I'm pretty sure to have squirrel run a more shallow cross and he brought the safety down. It, it was bang, bang. It was easy. And Dante won the battle. So um, that's what I go to first, but yeah, not a whole lot of positive when you only score seven points and he's an offensive coach. So you're kind of limited to what you can do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would, do you think Brian? Uh, I'll add one, one last thing. Yeah. bad runs on second and long don't get it <laughs> that's my big thing too. yeah runs in general and yesterday both of mine are like directly t- tied to jacks i'll say my good was the dante thornton bet. like he after the alabama game at least myself i think a lot of people were like all right he'll be done for the season and mm. josh i bet on dante thornton and said no we're gonna force you to play more you have the talent that caleb webb and chas nimrod don't and we need in the receiver room and obviously he gets hurt on that play which is the unfortunate part of it but uh, he had obviously played well against kentucky and then uh, hauling a big pass it there it felt like all right that gamble that decision by josh heifel which obviously was made three weeks ago and his coaching staff worked the negative <clears throat> not necessarily specifically to surrender punt and kick but just again three losses and three games on the road where things have gone bad for Tennessee and their team has completely shut down, completely crumbled. 
no sort of resiliency, cannot respond to adversity at all. Like that's a bad sign. And now in two of these three games, I don't mean to be an old man loser, but in two two of these three games, you have the Tennessee team more more revved up to try to fight the other team when the game's over than they yeah. were to play at all when something's gone bad. Like that's again, maybe this is an old man taking me, but that's that's embarrassing. Like that both those that happening twice. And in all three of your losses, you get hit with adversity and you absolutely crumble. And then in two of those, you're trying to fight the other team in the final 10 seconds, getting your absolute butt whooped against a horrible Florida team. And this Missouri team's good. Obviously, I don't mean to disrespect this specific Missouri team, but the University of Missouri football coach program, that, that's embarrassing. And that that's, to me, I guess, a lot, a lot of bad from Josh Heupel in Tennessee in that game. That is my lasting image when you want to talk about the program as a whole. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's more than fair. Um, we haven't mentioned Joe Milton in 34 minutes here. Seven points. He's number seven. <laughs> Mickey leaving... Mantle. Seven yeah. Costanza. The seven Costanza. <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, it's a great name. Future name if anyone wants to use it. It's a great name. It's a great soda, name. too. If anyone wants to use soda. Good for a boy and a girl. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just thinking about that whole episode. Um, no, I think what's interesting is like he's kind of been good graces all across the board. When y'all say from Tennessee fans that like most people have settled in on Joe, yeah, but seven points is seven points, and there is a difference between like, hey, things aren't going well. You had the bomb to Dante Thornton, but like some of the things that Brady Cook was doing. Joe was not doing and that this was something that annoyed me in this game was that I thought he was kind of making the turn a little bit rushing the football he was not good running the ball um and just turning stuff at something from nothing into something with the ball in his hands when stuff wasn't open downfield when they were really thin at wide receiver having a mobile quarterback is just so important for so many teams in the sport now and you're always it, it just seems like it's only getting harder and harder to have a uh just the statue back there but like I think this was another one of those games where things were not going right. Jalen Wright and Dylan Sampson and Jabari Small were not running the football well. This is where you need a Jaden Daniels guy to take off, to turn something from nothing. And I understand everybody can't have that. But this was something, if I was to, and this feels almost like nitpicking, but I think this was one of those games where Joe couldn't bail you out in other ways, where an elite quarterback would have been able to scramble, to do other stuff, to keep your team in it, to sustain drives, uh, go longer. I mean, there was that weird, as we talked about, the pitch play that uh, was a fumble. He had the bad thing where it wasn't really his fault, where Dylan Sampson was just right there, and that was a fumble. I don't think that you can pin that on Joe. I think you can throw the pick six on Joe, but I don't think it really mattered at that point in the game. Um, he's just pressing and just trying to make something out of nothing. I don't really hate that all that much. I just wonder it. This is where it's like he's a game manager where things get they get yep. down big and he's not a quarterback who is going to bring you back from two scores on the road. Like, I think that was something that was very evident in this one. Is that fair to just say he's not that guy? He can only play yeah. from a, a lead. Yeah, no, that's I mean, I just, I feel like that should have been common knowledge going into this game. That's just who Joe Milton is. He's not a game changer. He's not mm -hmm. going to put the team on his back. And that's what. Yeah. He's a big reason why I say when Tennessee goes down 12 points in the second half, they can't win because yeah. they don't have a quarterback that can get it done. And yeah, that's, that's not a great thing, but you can also, you've seen how they can get it done with Joe. So everything has to kind of click around him for it to work. He's just limited. That's, that's the facts. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's you guys both said comments that completely tie into one another where Jack, you said, you know, I think most people know that by now that, that he is. And that's why, 
Chase, you said why, you know, it doesn't seem like anybody's upset with Joe in his performance. That's why, like, I think everybody knows that Joe's a game manager. That's who Joe mm-hmm. is. I think everybody's been happier that Joe's played like a good game manager the last few weeks as opposed to just a bad quarterback that you have to call a game manager because he can't do anything and they just want him to manage the game, which is what he was early in the season. Uh, but no, that's that's who Joe is. And the things around Joe did not put them in position to win. And Joe's not someone that's going to pick up the team and carry them to a win when the things around him aren't in you know opportune spots. Yeah, it's not like Matt Corral, like you said, in uh, in Neyland two yeah. years ago, where he's just putting the team on his back, rushing for nearly 200 yards, getting killed in the backfield, just getting up over and over again. Yeah. Joe's not that guy. Like You get blanked in the second half against Alabama. You had the lead. Things start don't start to unravel, and he just can't he can't stop them. He can't overcome that kind of adversity on the football field. And I think at this point, you just kind of have to chalk that up. And to bring it all home here as we wrap up, George is coming down. The thing, if you're a Tennessee fan, I think you probably feel the best about. Brock Powers played in the Auburn game at Auburn. Auburn at that point in time in the Plains was atrocious offensively. They weren't able to do anything with a passing game against uh, Georgia. And they were still up for the majority of that game. It took a really strong fourth quarter, second half effort from Brock Bowers and company for Georgia to pull that out. Nealon will be rocking harder than what it was uh, on the planes two months ago. I understand George is playing really good ball. They're coming off a big win over Ole Miss now. But I think that's something to keep in mind that George is three, six, and one against the spread this year. They did not cover at Vanderbilt. They did not cover at Auburn. I think if you're the most optimistic Tennessee fan, you look at, I mean, hey, you were up after the first quarter two years ago at home. You did some stuff to surprise Georgia. You had them on the fence, uh, on the ropes, really, the first half. Kirby made adjustments. You get blasted in the second half. It is what it is. I think if you're a Tennessee fan, you look at all of those things. You look at how Auburn played Georgia at home. You know how Heupel and this group is at home. Your last big game of the year. This is it because you're going to be in like the Citrus Bowl or whatever um, after this one. And then you get Vanderbilt. Right, so, you're going to be in the Citrus Bowl. Well, yeah, like whatever it is. It's not something you're going to yeah. get up for. You're playing Iowa or Rutgers potentially uh, come December. So this is it. Uh, for a lot of seniors, COVID guys like this, uh, there's a lot of optimism in that front. I think the most optimistic view is that I do think they're probably going to cover. I don't think they get blasted at home and blown out uh, in this final big home game. But maybe I'm too optimistic about that point. But I think that is probably where I'm leaning is that they do cover a 10-point spread right now. What say you, Jack? Do you Are you that optimistic after everything we just saw over the weekend? I mean, I don't know that. Uh, that's a close game if they cover 10. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's a major win for Tennessee if they can keep it close with Georgia next weekend, considering how the Bulldogs looked against Ole Miss. I don't really know. I, I'm, on, I'm non-committal right now on, on a Sunday, but, yeah, I, I don't see why they can't. Uh, I think they're certainly capable of covering 10 points. I do think it, they will keep it competitive for a little bit. Maybe not the whole game, but at least for a good chunk of it. They will not get blown out at home. just won't happen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think they cover 15. I'll put it that way. M- maybe I'm more confident they cover 10 by Thursday. That's fair. Yeah, I, I'm kind of like Jack where I say it's hard to say for sure. Between the Georgia not being good against the spread and everyone in the whole entire universe saying hammer Georgia, that, you know, these guys are pretty smart. Uh, they don't have all those bu- big buildings in Las Vegas losing money. Uh, that kind of makes me think Tennessee will cover, but the one thing I will say, just going back to your point, you kept on pointing out the Auburn game, which, I mean, I get. It's the most radical example. 
I think Georgia's a lot a lot better team than they were hmm. two months ago. Like you're just seeing it. Josh Allen talks about it all the time. Like you have to get better over the course of the season. I think Georgia's. It's why I, I thought Tennessee would be better. Even though Tennessee, I think at least before yesterday, we would have said Tennessee's done a lot of getting better over the season too. Uh, but why I thought maybe this game would be better for him to play early in the season when Georgia's still trying to figure some things out and has a new quarterback. But to me, Carson Beck's getting better. Their offense is a lot better than it was early in the year. And even I think their defense is starting to look more like a traditional Georgia defense than the one that was still good and probably still really good, but looked like it had definitely taken a, a somewhat sizable step back going into the year. I also think it will end up helping. What it, when we talk about it, where it's like having nothing to play for and no stakes for Georgia – I think helps Tennessee in this matchup. Georgia yeah. locking it up, guaranteed date with Alabama no matter what, no losses. I think that actually sets up Tennessee better than it would have been if it was a battle for the East because you are looking at a situation where Georgia walks in, they're like, absolutely not. We're not. Oh, this is now our Super Bowl like last year, um, and you're going to get uh, dunked on at home. And I don't think that's going to be the case because of the circumstance. I think that it sucks that you won't go to the East again, but whatever, this team was never going to make it through the gauntlet um but i think it actually will be in tennessee's favor that there's no stakes in this game oh there's no question you know they have nothing to lose and mm. as i said earlier college football that that means a lot and i thought the line was i was surprised by the line but when i saw the line i was like okay you know the books obviously feel like tennessee is going to continue with the trend that happens in college football that hey, back against the wall play really hard teams coming off a big win doesn't really mean much for them maybe they play a little lackadaisical so I, I feel like the wonk move, like the betting expert move, would be to pick Tennessee to cover based on all those things. Yeah, and it's also like it's not – and I don't know. This is so deep in the psyche of it. Maybe this wouldn't matter at all. But it's not like this is one of those years where Georgia could no doubt or would no doubt not get in or get in with one loss. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's – if they if they win this game and they lose to Alabama, like it's possible they get in, but it's it's not definitive. And at the same time, like if they lose this game and they beat Alabama, like they're definitively going to go be it. Like the Alabama game, obviously it's more important, but just like a loss slash a win in the Alabama game is going to carry way way more weight for Georgia yeah. than this one is. So even past it, just not feeling like a big game and and not being for the East and Tennessee looking worse, like it's everything points to this one not meaning a ton for Georgia besides the fact that what this is, I think the game they can get to the record for the longest SEC win streak ever. But I don't know if that's really something that's super motivating. Yeah. Well, uh, Ryan, what could the good books check out from you and the team over at Rocky top insider this week? Um, I put it in, I put a tweet out yesterday and then also put it in my takeaways article. You know, as our, we always have like a more, more from RTI and always just do the same sport and just like, basically the name of the title but i put it in there yesterday maybe it's basketball time in tennessee yes it uh, is so they they look good uh plenty of stuff from obviously i was in madison covering it and then jumped on the football side of it and jack and rick were holding it all down in columbia so we have plenty of good stuff uh from the the fallout of uh tennessee missouri and the debacle of the performance and we take a look at i'm sure we'll have no we'll have tons of stuff all week in uh, a look at georgia and trying to see how this tennessee team will bounce back so a lot of a lot of typical in-season football stuff and uh, a lot of basketball stuff is excitement gets uh, rubbed up for Rick Barnes' night Tennessee team. I mean, I'm already struggling with my Zakai can't play over Ganey in crunch time take. <laughs> like, I think Zakai is not one of your five best, and I don't know if that happens this year. But I love Zakai to death, 
my early take. Dalton Connect closer, but Jordan Ganey, best best shot on the team. Best uh, I'm all in on the Jordan Ganey stuff. This the jumpers Jordan, you asked you asked Chase, I was gonna say June, you asked Chase in, in September <laughs> about Jordan Ganey and you say you can't have him on the on the court for four, <laughs> more than five minutes a game. No, and, I'm all in. Chase is very Chase is very lucky. Our Tennessee basketball conversation last week was off air. Uh, I don't know what you mean. Because he had some. I don't know ooh, what you're saying. No. He had I, some cold takes to argue to to rival Josh Heupel coaching decisions in in Missouri this weekend. Oh wow. Well, no, we're not doing it. Uh, Jack Foster, what about you and the team over at Always College Football? Yeah, normal Sunday reaction dropped today. Um, reacting to a great week eleven. We got the Tuesday night instant college football playoff reaction show that's been dropping. That's been a whole lot of fun. Greg's been was super fired up last week. I don't know if you guys saw him on the actual ESPN show, but hmm. um, he was he was super fired up and uh, probably a pretty cool guest coming on Tuesday night as well. So okay. just uh, continuing to you know the grind of college football season doesn't get any better than this. There it goes. It doesn't get any better than this. But it's basketball time in Tennessee and baseball here before hey, you. Know. I'm 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 out. I I'm fine with college basketball. Like yeah, I'll, I'll watch the Tennessee games, but. It's not basketball time yet. Like okay. I'm still complete football brain until it's over. Oh, I'm absolutely checked out emotionally from the Tennessee football <laughs> team. I can't handle it anymore. I, I want to put this and, all to and bed. The Falcons lost the Cardinals today. So. I, I well, hold on. Uh, knew how that was going. It was still taping on uh, on my other screen. So we're taping this at the end of that game. So thank you, Jack Foster, for uh, going ahead and wrapping up how that one went down <laughs> because uh, that was still on the back burner for later on this evening, but. Thankfully, Jack Foster's here to ensure that I did not waste uh, the last 30 minutes of my night. So shout out to Jack on that front. Um, no spoilers. <laughs> I didn't know. My bad. No, it's okay. It, it's fine. I, what do you expect? Kyler came back. I mean, your hands are tied. All right. I don't want to talk any Falcons or Tennessee football anymore. I, 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 I'm I ready to put both to bed for the rest of this year. It's basketball season, like we said, and baseball season will be here before you know it. I just want to flush both. Flush them both. I can't handle it anymore. No more. <laughs> tired of the winning. It's not that. It's tired of the losing. I can't handle no any more losing. No more. No more. It's not fun. It's just, And it's the longest sport. Seven hours of these games. And um, it's seven hours of torture. No, can't do it. Uh, no more losing. Well, Jack uh, saved you 30 minutes. He did. So Jack did happened, ultimately save sure. me there. So I do appreciate that. Work tapes, Chase. Thank you. Yep. I appreciate that, Jack. Uh, Jack Foster, Ryan Shepard, always a pleasure. Talk to y'all soon. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, Everything School HQ, up there in New York City. Fangraph's own John Taylor is here. Yes. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Good. It, it's it's free agent time now. The offseason mm. has begun. Uh, I think we are now, the free agency has officially started. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. It's an exciting time if you like mystery teams and rumors and bob nightingale's tweets uh mm. big 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 time right now it, it's a big time for america it's a big time for all of us i mean we even like uh went over just the red sox hiring a new gm and uh it was a former red sox pitcher Frank and Breslow, uh, former yeah. cubs director of pitcher development essentially really went under the radar here we made the jokes for weeks and i was like you know what i realized i was reading uh some stuff about him being a hit at the gm meetings this week and i was like 
You know, I don't think I even asked John in the last two weeks because of the World Series and everything else. Like, hey, John, you have a new GM. Uh, everyone said no, but uh, Craig everyone said yes. No. Craig said yes, mostly because this is a, an astonishing promotion for him. I don't mm. say astonishing when it comes to, you know, what he knows or what he's good at. He's, he's actually done quite well when it comes to his previous role with the Cubs, working in primarily, like I said, in pitcher development. Mm. Uh, he's had some some pretty notable success there, particularly for a club that up until the last uh, two or three years really had not been able to develop much of any homegrown pitching. Um, but, but also this is a guy going from arguably an assistant GM role to controlling an entire front office. It's an enormous mm. step up. Uh, it really, I think, says a lot as to... I think it says a lot both as to what the Red Sox are prioritizing, which is primarily they need pitching, they need to figure out how to develop it, they need to figure out how to acquire and improve it, but also that, like you said, everybody else said no. Uh, <laughs> established folks said no, uh, existing general managers said no, because, and and I think this is something that the firing of, of Heimblum made pretty clear, you are dealing with interfering ownership that has both the desire to win now, but also on their terms, which is to say without spending too much money, ideally. And you also have, and I think this is, and this is something we'll have to wait to see exactly how it plays out, but the presence of Alex Cora as mm. manager, and clearly not just as manager, but also as a manager who has the ear and the backing of ownership, very clearly is someone that ownership supports. Otherwise, I think he would have been gone as well with Bloom. I'd, I don't really know how you can split hairs on that one to say, well, it's all it's all Bloom's fault, but Alex Cora, he gets to stay. Mm -hmm. I, I have to imagine that for a lot of candidates, there's a sense of not only is this a difficult market, not only is this a difficult division, not only is this an ownership group where the money spigot tends to go on and off without any real control on our part and where the expectations are extremely high, I don't even get to choose my own manager. Yeah. I don't even get to, to decide who the person I want in charge of this whole thing is on a field level, because that's just Alex Cora. And I get the sense that it's going to be Alex Cora until Alex Cora either no longer wants the job or does something that loses him the job entirely. But I don't know. I, I, I will be positive or Sox. optimistic. Go Red Sox. I'll be optimistic about Breslow, if only because, again, he did get some good results with the Cubs. I think he, he seems like a smart guy. Um, you know, and, I think the and problem obviously... is, like, if you're a Red Sox fan, you're just like, yeah, I mean, he could be cool, but if we have an ownership problem, that permeates down from to into everything. Like, right. how do you and, get and excited I, about it? It doesn't matter, really. And I think that's kind of the issue with Breslow is I don't really know how much you can say one way or another. This is his doing. This is his fault. This is it's all going to come from ownership. And I think mm -hmm. depending how the early particularly, I think how free agency goes, given what the Red Sox need, which is to say pitching, and mm -hmm. given what this free agent market has a lot of, which is to say pitching. Uh, I think we're going to learn pretty quickly within the first couple months of free agency whether or not this ownership group is serious about getting better at the thing they need to get better at or whether it's going to be more of the same a la Bloom with, well, here's $50 million to work with, good luck. Like, you know, or you can only sign two-year contracts, good luck. Mm. Like, you know, I, get, I, don't, I don't know what, what if any uh, restrictions Bloom had in terms of the job he was able to do, but I, I don't get the sense ownership gave him a free reign and yep. it's really going to be telling with Breslow if that if that is different. Um, some of that too might just be what Bloom was able to sell them on uh, when he took the job versus what Breslow, you know, was was able to sell them on or diagnose. But I well, remain also, cautiously I mean, optimistic. Yeah, and, I mean, you have opportunities elsewhere. Like there's a rising young GM in Pittsburgh who's developing talent really well. Like maybe you you get in that business. Maybe you 
if this doesn't work out with Craig Breslow, maybe you give uh, this guy Jed Hoyer a call. Like there are options in the Red Sox that they haven't looked at. I mean, whether well, it's, it's funny Carrington how, or it's or funny Brett. how many pieces of that former brain trust are now just scattered all over yes. Major League Baseball between Hoyer, Charrington, mm. um, uh, Mike Hazen out in Arizona, whom yeah. they approached and who very quickly said no, thank you. Um, yeah, it, it's. Again, that, that part said a lot, but I also think, you know, like you said, it, it's an ownership issue. And until ownership, well, I guess now the onus is now on ownership. Okay, you got your guy, you know, you're starting fresh. Now you've got to prove that you're actually going to put the resources into this to make it work. And it can't just be, here's some money for the draft. You know, it's got to mm. be more than that. It's got to be, too, uh, letting Breslow have a free hand when it comes to picking the people he's working with. I think one of the strange things about Bloom was he took over a front office that still had AGMs in... Uh, Brian O'Halloran, Eddie Romero, uh, Raquel Ferreira, who just were part of the previous administration, who've been there pretty long, in, or at least in baseball terms, pretty much forever. Um, so it'll be interesting to see who Breslow gets to bring in, who, if anyone, leaves, what the kind of structure of that front office turns into. Um, and also, again, like I said, it, it's going to be on ownership to open the wallet and make hard decisions money-wise, because... There's not really help coming in the farm system, and I don't think that this Red Sox team is in a position to make trades for the kind of, you know, I, I don't think they're a team that could be in on a Corbin Burns. You know, I'm not sure that yeah. they're a team that can that can pay that kind of freight. But, um, like I said, cautiously optimistic. I think this is far better, obviously, than, you know, when you hear names like Neil Huntington getting bat getting batted around, where it's like, really, that the dude who, fit, who flunked out of the Pirates like 10 years ago, that's what we're looking at. So it could have out. been worse, basically. And I, like I said, Breslow seems like a smart guy. He's done. He did good work with the Cubs. The thing I, I think I mainly worry about is he doesn't have that that overseer experience, and he also doesn't have that kind dog of in him. The, we'll see if he's got that dog in him. If you put the mm. X-ray up, if you get the little pit bull puppy in his chest, but yeah, um, I, I will. I will hope for the best for him. You know, I, I just think this is this is probably one of the tougher tasks in Major League Baseball is to run this team as it's currently constructed. I mean, we just don't know, but we'll see uh, how ownership evolves and we'll see if they spin because I think there has been some stuff about whether or not that they might actually dip their toes a little bit more in the free agent pool. So we we shall see how that ultimately unfolds, uh, John Taylor, in the coming weeks. Um, something else we'll see unfold in the coming weeks is, um, hey, uh, Tim Anderson, what does his appeal look like uh, None, this winter? zero, absolutely nothing. I, I th- is it over? I don't know if it's over, but this is not a dude who this this guy this man's career is on as violent a downswing as possible. It, he, yeah. it, it it's hit the floor faster than he did when Jose Ramirez decked him. Like wow. Look, I mean, if you're gonna, and this is the thing about the Tim Anderson experience last year, where it's like I like Tim Anderson as a player. He's mm. you know he's a, he he plays hard. He's a he's got a lot of tools that are really cool. But at the same time, like last year his season was the equivalent of just getting decked in that fight just a ton mm. of talk and then immediately gets floored by an awful awful right hook too like not even a clean one not even a good one necessarily but you know I, I think the thing with Tim Anderson that has always been the concern with him was and it's similar to a lot of guys who whose careers were built you know primarily on speed and contact but not a whole lot of plate discipline or you know power which is that game ages very poorly. Mm. Um, and I think you 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 can already see it with Anderson. I mean, look at his WRC plus figures from 2020 onward. Or, we'll, we'll include we'll include 2020. Note there's a shortened season, but from 2019 onward, better. 128, mm. 140 in the shortened season. 118, 110, 60. Yeah, things have gone really, really, really downhill for him very fast. A lot of that is injuries. But like I said, this is a guy who had 
has a career walk rate just under 4%, hasn't posted one above 5% ever in his career, strikeout rates above 20%, isolated powers never as, you know, crap or crested 200 in 2020 and has been on a plummet since then. Um, a guy whose game is very reliant on balls in play, uh, making things happen with his legs, uh, making contact within the strike zone to, to, to his benefit, but that's also not hard contact in the strike zone. You look at, at his stat cast numbers, his hard hit rates have never been above 40-some percent. You know, that's not particularly high. You're talking about a, a guy with a barrel rate that's never gotten above. Been, it was 10% in the shortened season, but since then, 7.8, 5.8, 2.9. Not a guy who hits the ball hard. Again, a guy who makes the most out of, essentially, good good batted ball placement and the ability to run out balls and turn inf- turn grounders into infield hits, to turn bloops into, into, well, I guess bloops into singles anyone can do, turn singles into doubles, or, especially with the element of speed, get on base and then steal second or third in the first place and basically get an extra base hit in a roundabout way. That's not there right now. And I you mm-hmm. have to wonder, too, with all the injuries he suffered, and again, with the profile where there's not a whole lot of plate discipline and there's not a whole lot of, of quality contact, what is there really left? Defensively, he's still got chops. You know, He can still handle shortstop. But the question is, you know, offensively, you might be settling in for like a 90 WRC plus bat. What is that realistically worth on the open market? $8 million? $10 million for a year? And I don't really think you're going to get a, a team that's going to be willing to give him a multi-year contract. I think Tim Anderson, more likely than not, is going to get some kind of pillow deal, and probably with the second division club. Whatever team out there, whatever bad or rebuilding team out there could use, use some shortstop help, and maybe has an idea of, look, let's bring him in. If he plays well in the first half, we'll flip him in the second. We'll flip him at the deadline, try to get something out of it. Or maybe it's a second-tier contender that can't necessarily afford, or doesn't want to afford, essentially anything better. You know, Maybe a team like Miami will try him out and just figure, look, the defense is there, we like guys who make contact a lot. Doesn't matter if you don't walk. Doesn't matter if there's not a lot of power. We just need a steady func- a steady play, a steady shortstop. Maybe getting him out of the spotlight is good. Place uh, getting him down to Miami, where you know it's kind of anonymous, essentially. I think that's kind of the team you would probably expect to be in on Tim Anderson this offseason. A, a Miami, maybe a a, you a know, Boston. Boy, I cannot imagine a worse combination between player and city than Tim Anderson in the city of Boston. That That is say, a hard no-go it. for a lot of people. Well, didn't Justin Turner, he declined his player option, right? He did, but that was in part because there was... So that player option came with a guaranteed, uh, what's it called, um, buyout worth $6.7 mm. million, which, and the, the option itself was about 13 or so. Which yeah. means realistically, all Turner needs to do is get a contract of eight million dollars or better this offseason, and he will make more money. And mm. given how he was a good hitter last season, he just doesn't really have a defensive position anymore. He should be able to beat that. Some team out there will probably want to. Park this man's gonna be playing baseball him. until thirty. He's like forty. No, I, I think Turner's probably got like two more seasons left. You say I, that? How old is Justin Turner? Hold on. He's gonna do the Stephen Bow treatment, where he's just gonna pop up as a manager of the Red Sox in fifteen years. We're like, I Turner is know. Turner's thirty-eight. That's why I'm saying he's only really got two seasons left. Like, and especially because he's gonna keep playing. You saw it last season in Boston too. I think that yeah. defensively. He doesn't really have a home, and the more you put him out there, the larger the risk becomes that he's going to get hurt because he's never mm. been a guy who's been able to stay healthy for particularly long stretches of time. Uh, 2021 and 2016 are the only two seasons of his career he's topped 150 games. Um, it, it's just not a realistic option, I think, to plug him in as a starting third baseman anywhere. I think yeah. if you get him, it's the, the expectation that he's playing 
75% of the time at DH, and of the remaining 25%, the majority of that is probably at first base. He's fl he's fl uh, slotting in at third base, maybe, but I, I, I see him as more of a, a DH option. And the other complication with that is most teams don't like having a set DH. I think mm. a lot of teams at this point prefer rotating guys in and out of the DH spot because yeah. that way it lets you give guys a break. It lets you be a little more flexible with your roster. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think uh, Turner also, uh, speaking of Miami, I think you know Miami was clearly hard in on him last offseason, uh, was trying to make a deal for him at the deadline. Granted, that was the, that was Kim Eng, different, different uh, folks in charge now in Miami. Uh, Peter Bendix, formerly of the Rays, is now their uh, general manager. But... I can see Miami being in on Turner as well as a kind of low-cost plus uh, offensive addition. But yeah, I, I think when it comes to Tim Anderson, it's it's a team like Miami. It, maybe it's a team like uh, the A's would be very depressing on a lot of levels. But maybe it's a team like the A's. Maybe it's a team like uh, I was going to say the, the White Sox. To me, but I can see, actually honestly, I can have see... the Renaissance. Sure. And he'd be solid. He wouldn't be amazing. He'd just be solid for the next decade. The Giants. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're the Giants, and granted, you know, Brandon Crawford is, is almost certainly done there. I I, yeah. I don't think that... I think that's you know, a seamless transition there for him. Yeah, and I wonder again if it's something that, you know, their current shortstop, but I guess that's a question is, would they rather get a guy like Anderson to try to hold the fourth down, or do they want to yeah. just give that position to Marco Luciano, one of their top prospects, and say, hit the ground running and let's see what we have? Or do you sign Anderson as kind of a... Do the Orlando Arcia type position. deal, like what the Braves did, where it's like, look, we want Vaughn Grissom to be our everyday shortstop out of the gate here, but also we are trying to win a title here. We're trying to uh, be a team that uh, wins a title every single year. We have uh, high expectations, so if you don't meet it, then we have to have uh, fail-safes, and Orlando Arcia turned out to be a, a solid fail-safe uh, last year, uh, getting rid of the NLDS there, but um by and large i think that's probably the way to go because like uh, i mean some not everyone's going to be adley rutschman out here not everyone is just coming up doing that and the the giants have recent history with that with uh with uh bart yeah i mean it, it is an open question because i mean you also look at the teams that struggled at shortstop last year that could use the help i think san francisco and boston i think are both in the same place where it's like there's not really you know they're they're looking for youth and unfortunately yeah. like i said boston is just not just categorically not a a, a culture fit for tim anderson yeah uh, like I said, Oakland, Miami. I could see Cleveland being part of that, maybe if they can, if they could theoretically get him cheap enough. Uh, Pittsburgh, if O'Neill Cruz has some kind of setback, possibly. But I, I just don't see Anderson's market being anything other than essentially last place rebuilding teams or a team that suffers uh, like a a la the Dodgers did last year with Gavin Lux, where he you know suffers a season-ending injury in spring training. And they're forced to, to to kind of skim the waiver wire, but mm. no, I, I think Tim Anderson's days of being an impact player are probably done because the profile, it, it's a profile like similar, I think, to a guy like Carl Crawford, where it's all star, all star, all star, and then all of a sudden the bottom drops out, yeah. and it doesn't really come back, barring a complete change in approach. So, you know, I, and it stinks. Like I really, again, I really like Tim Anderson as a player. I really like who he is and what he represents. It's just not, you know, his game is just not built for longevity, though. Mm. Uh, John Taylor, a lot of managerial changes. Yes. Uh, Craig Council stolen uh, by the Chicago Cubs, uh, which was that a great was day. Wild. You and I texting back and forth about where that was going to go. My gut said he was either uh, Cardinals or Cubs um, in the chat, and he ends up on the Cubs. Uh, Midwestern guy through and through. 
Um, it seems like every new story about the Brewers that comes out, it's like, oh, they're going for a long-term rebuild. It's over. And I think you yeah, saw the writing on the wall there. It's a little uh, concerning, isn't it? Everything you hear about Milwaukee, where the vibe yeah. just seems to be, eh, we try, but it's over now. Yeah. I think they're going into the cellar. Like, everything yeah. says just screams to me that they are going in the tank, uh, Pittsburgh Pirate style, uh, sooner rather than later. Um, but, but, John, yes. Mendoza to the Mets. Steven, Carlos Mendoza, yes. Uh, is it bot or vote? Vote? It's vote. I'll That's what it I thought. Rhymes, it just it doesn't sound right in my head. I, I see it all the time. Steven vote. Vote or I die. Just, yeah, vote or die. Um, of all the new managerial changes, council, Mendoza, vote, who, who fascinates you the most and who do you think uh, is the most uh, interesting of the bunch? I think it's got to be council. I mean, mm. no offense to vote or Mendoza. I think vote will be fine. Um, you know, he's he's had that future manager tab on him for seemingly forever. It feels like. Yeah. Mendoza, I I don't really know what to expect. He was Aaron Boone's bench coach. Um, there's not, you know, he doesn't really have much of a a, a resume or a, or kind of a, a you know a, a background to, to go forward. I, yeah. I imagine what the Mets are kind of hoping there is just someone who is maybe in that Tori Lavulo mode of just being both, you know, someone who can relate to players at a younger level, but also is pliable with regards to, you know, the the willingness to work with a sabermetrically inclined front office like David Stearns, as David Stearns is. But yeah, it, it's got to be counsel. I mean, for starters, the fact that he is there on the biggest managerial contract ever given out in Major League Baseball, eight years, $40 million, which on the one hand, $5 million a year, I mean, that's chump change in like college football. Um, mm. How much does Nick Saban make a year? $16 million or something? He makes uh, quite a bit. Um, yeah. Let me see off the top of my head. I mean, he just, he has a lot of other investments. He just bought like uh, two car dealerships and it's like something crazy. I, I he... like that that's just the go-to way to make money in if you're an SEC figure is just get into the car dealership game. He makes 1.1 million per year. That's it? Wow, I would have yeah. thought a lot more than that. Um, fine, okay, well, maybe Jimbo Fisher is the better example in terms of well, you got to remember, it's, uh, or excuse me, 11 uh, million a year. Okay, that that sounds better. Sorry. I was going to say, there's no way Jim, there's no way Nick Saban makes like a tenth of what Jimbo Fisher yeah, does. Yeah, no, that sorry would about be that. Incredibly funny. Um, but yeah, a, a ton of money for a manager. Yeah. Um, obviously, stealing him away from a division rival is a huge thing. Uh, the fact that David Ross got got in the process, I think, is is also fascinating because there did not really seem to be, at least, you know, uh, not a Cubs fan, obviously, but... Uh, for my limited read, I did not get the sense that David Ross was considered to be a problem of any sort. I guess this feels more like when I think the Cubs it was... hired Joe Madden and let Rick Renneria go all those years ago. Well, I think it, from the outside, it certainly feels like Council is seen as the best manager in baseball. And uh, yeah. ESPN had a good piece on like what makes him stand out and just how much value or how many wins he's just pulled from an organization that has severely hindered um the yeah, on-field that, product so a, it's like we don't that really basically tied yeah. a hand behind his back yes and he's still been like i'll just keep winning the division try and stop me i'll just keep doing it and he's also um really really good at handling the bullpen is seemingly yes. that seems like a big council thing is that is a, a very strong trait of his so it's like he actually stands out among his peers in that look man he he it, it seems very obvious that he has a tangible impact on his team winning baseball games and you can't say that for a lot of managers so i i just think when he comes available hey david we love you thank you for the memories but like this guy moves the needle it's like just i don't know i, I feel like there was like a all understanding with baseball fans of like i mean it's craig council you gotta i mean just you gotta do it yeah and like i said it reminds me of the cubs dumping rick renneria for joe madden uh, yeah pre-world series but 
what I think is is really instructive about counsel is given how much he's being paid, mm. and given too what you just said that he has made himself this reputation as a guy that can turn uh pardon my French chicken shit into chicken salad for <laughs> mm-hmm. for the majority. What does that mean the Cubs are going to do? Does them spending this money on counsel indicate that they are ready to reopen the coffers and they're going to go big and assemble this big roster around him? Or does hiring counsel mean that they're like, hey, that thing you did in Milwaukee, just come do it in Chicago. Are we mm. going to give you more money? Absolutely not. We're, you're gonna have to, we're expecting you to do the exact same thing. Essentially, you turn straw into gold, great. Here's, some, here's a huge pile of straw. Mm. Get spinning. Like... And and I think again, as with Boston, it, we're only going to be able to tell in the off season that that is now here and in free agency what the Cubs plan on doing. Yeah. Um, I I would be surprised if their one expenditure of the off season, so to speak, was a manager, and if they thought, well, everything else is is tip top, we can just move on from here. Like this yeah. is a team that missed out on the playoffs last season, and granted, not by much, and mostly because they just kind of you know chunked it in in the back in the in in September, which is also probably a pretty big reason why Ross has gone. Is I, I don't think he can. It's hard to survive something like that, even if even if there isn't a council available. But you know, I this team still needs work. There still needs there still needs to be things done, and even if Milwaukee is going to take that step back, and even if St. Louis isn't back at that contender level yet, and even if Cincinnati isn't there yet. And even if Pittsburgh, well, they don't matter. But they might is, soon. Who knows? They, but that's the thing. I I, I yeah. wonder too if the layout of the NL Central and if the belief that the Brewers are taking that step back and saying this window has now closed, we were never going to be able to keep this going forever, particularly because ownership doesn't want to spend big here. Is the are the Cubs looking around and going, hey, eighty five wins is probably enough to take this division next year. We don't really need to go big this off season, and we've just picked up the manager who probably makes the biggest difference in terms of those marginal getting the most out of your roster, like that one extra win that would be so crucial. This is the, you know, is this guy more impactful than anyone we could sign? Yeah. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think Chicago should not stop here, but it is fascinating to me what his signing theoretically says in, in two completely different directions. Again, it could mean the gates are now open again at Wrigley. Spend, spend, spend. We're going to buy our mm-hmm. way to a World Series once again. Or... We're gonna aim for the bot. We're gonna aim for 85 wins. We've got a guy who's really, really good at doing that, and then we'll figure it out from there. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I want to. Again, I want it to be the former. I, I want yeah. teams to try harder than aiming for the for the, essentially the the basement and hoping that that's enough. But I worry because again, the NL Central is where hope goes to die for the most part, and who knows? Maybe maybe that is the 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 push for the Cubs is. He did it in Milwaukee. He could do it here, and we're not going to give him any extra either. Just you know, he'll he'll just get to do it at a nicer stadium. Maybe I don't know. I shouldn't say that because I Milwaukee Stadium is perfectly fine. It's just kind of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and actually, here's what I'll give you uh, credit to Milwaukee uh, builders here, ardent listeners of the podcast. The the builders involved in the uh, the Milwaukee baseball stadium. Uh, which will always be uh, Miller High Life Park. Um, yeah, it's American family. Get the hell out of there. Yeah, it's, I'm not doing it's that. It's the high life. Um, that's your bread and butter there. I don't know how you're not a presenting sponsor of Miller High Life. And I really you should, should be. Give, you should be given season tickets or like passes. If like, anyone on weekend. the Brewers or at Miller InBev is Miller Coors, whatever, is listening yeah. to this, please send me your product. I will <laughs> not promote it. I will not acknowledge it, but I will consume it. There you go. Hey. Look, he enjoys the product the way that John intended. He's a man of principle. And I am just... a man of principle. No free clout. No <laughs> no promoted clout. No paid. No clout at all. I will not help yeah. you in that capacity. 
not a cloud guy not but cloud all that guy. to be said it's a different looking park and so many parks now just look the same and no one takes chances on weird looking parks and hey it's different like when you watch the game you're like hey that's clearly milwaukee that's a different I, looking park which i prefer. i will also appreciate that the, the when i went there i've been there once and yeah. they sell long island iced teas in the stadium Ooh. which granted Ooh. they are not particularly strong long island iced teas but yeah. it's still a Long Island iced tea, and it's only like $12. In case you were wondering... Uh, I'm Those are sure going to go up, by the way, over the next yeah, couple look, years of Brewers baseball. Like Do you think Corbin gonna... Burns pays for himself? No. Um, I also want to note Milwaukee Stadium has more bathrooms than any stadium I've ever been to in my life. Huh. Which makes sense, given how how much drinking and how drunk everyone there is. A lot of cheese. A lot of cheese, a lot of beer. Like, yeah. you, you're just going to need to go to the bathroom. bathroom you need constantly. some facilities, yeah. Yeah, so... All of which is to say, Milwaukee, a good a good town with good baseball with a good baseball stadium. But I, I worry about the Brewers. I worry about the NL Central again. It just seems. Why are to you be... worrying about the NL Central, John? There's so many other things. Just text me when you're starting to wane and you're like, it's eight o'clock at night, and you're just like, I just the Pirates. I, just can't get I don't the know if they're going to get out of the head. mud. And I'm like, John, stop it. What's going to happen to the Reds' farm system? <laughs> again, it's just it is it is survival of the cheapest. That's yeah. just how that division operates. It's kind of well. A what's funny is both Centrals are like that. The AL and yeah. NL Central, are, they operate in the same world. Look, I mean, if we want to talk the other Chicago team that is just... No, we don't. Chris Getz openly came out and said, I don't like our roster, which is just yeah. a phenomenal start to the offseason for the White Sox. On mm. top of, hey, everyone, that announcer you all love because he's really, really good at his job, yeah. he's leaving. And not only that, he's going to team. a rival. Yeah. He's going to the Tigers. They, and they open next year with the Tigers, which is yeah. great. That's in Chicago too. That's it, 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 like this offseason oh, well, is the other part of that too. With uh, it's not even the White Sox. The, I didn't realize how close Milwaukee is to Chicago, mm-hmm. but that does suck if you're a Brewers fan. Is just the Cubs fans are going to make this as painful yeah, it's... as humanly possible, and they're going to stack Milwaukee. They're going to make the trip to really rub it in. Yeah, you just you look like a farm system now to to the Cubs. I mean, look, and that's been going on for a bit now. The Milwaukee Chicago back and forth to the point yeah. where I remember the Brewers had a thing where it's like for Chicago for Cubs series, like priority for ticket sales is going to residents of Wisconsin. Like everyone else is is back back seated for that. But um, yeah, Naperville, you're out. Good off, good off season start on the set on the north side. Yeah. Bad off season start on the south side. Man. Um, and I don't see the South Side getting any better anytime no. soon. No, they are committing to small ball though, John. That's uh, one. So are the Yankees that... apparently. The the, yeah. the Hal Steinbrenner has put his top men on the case <laughs> and has decided that the way to winning baseball in 2024 is bunting. Uh, I love it. Uh, what a world, uh, John Taylor. What can the good books check out for you and the team over at Fangraphs.com this week? So our top 50 free agent list is out, came out on Thursday. You can check it out right now. Uh, Ben Clemens and the rest of our, Ben Clemens uh, did a big chunk of the writing of all the rest of our writers, did some player notes. We've got projections, valuations, crowdsource contract estimates. It's huge. It's great. A lot of people put a lot of time and energy into it. Please check it out. I think it's uh, a very, very, very good list. Uh, we have Jay Jaffe doing his Hall of Fame stuff already. He is looking at the managers, umpires, and executives on the contemporary ballot, the contemporary veterans committee ballot that will be voted on at winter meetings and revealed at winter meetings. So if you're interested in the Hall of Fame chances of the likes of Lou Pinella or Davey Johnson or Jim Leland or Country Joe West, who is now mm. up for and is almost certainly going to make it into the Hall of Fame. So get ready for that speech where he ejects people from the audience like every five minutes. Uh, go check out Jay's profiles as they come out. A reminder, too, 
the Hall of Fame ballot itself will probably be out sometime in the next two weeks once it comes out. Jay is going to kick off his Jaws profiles. There are tons of new names that are going to be added to the ballot. Most notably, Adrian Beltre and Joe Maurer. Ooh, really probably first ballot guy that's there. Yes, I think so too. So keep an eye out for that. Otherwise, now that free agency has started, come on over to Fangraphs. Anytime there's a trade, a signing, anything, we will be on it for uh, to give you the full breakdown. And while you're there, come sign up for a membership. $10 a month, $60 a year, gets you ad-free browsing, plus lots of other perks. Fangraphs, we are off-season baseball good. There you go. John Taylor, always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.